Hello, this is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which have turn led to the renaming of periods into ages. You've personally just experienced the information age and what a ride it has been. Now, just consider for a moment that you might right now be living through a new transitional age, the age of infinite. An age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by a redefined lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that has come to life as together we create a new definition of the future. Our podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut. We were named by NASA Project Moon Hut through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use those endeavors, the paradigm shift thinking and the innovations and turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring thinking bigger and bigger and bigger when it comes to anything. And we have Hank Rogers with us today. How are you, Hank? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, Hank has a, uh, not only a history, but an interesting job. He is the owner of the Tetris company, you know, the game Tetris that you play. That is his. Uh, he was in Japan. He first, he's a, an entrepreneur in the video game designer, or video game designer and entrepreneur. He then ended up creating a video game, found, secured the right to Tetris. And from there, if he wants to give any more, it's just amazing that uh, he's here. And so the little backstory, I don't always give a lot of, about an individual, but the first ever event that I ever went to in the space industry was 2014, 2015. I think it was early 2015 because we started Project Moon Hut in 2014. Is the f I was asked to go to an event in Hawaii called the Great Giant Leap. And at this event, I was told would be some of the top people in the space industry. So we had, sorry to say, the first event I ever went to, or 50, about 50 people, there was Buzz Aldrin. There was the individual who put the rover on the comet from France, who worked with the European Space Agency. There were some people there who'd been so engaged in the space industry that it was like being at a PhD level event. I was typing so fast to figure out what a dragon was, what kilograms was. I didn't think it was Game of Thrones, just to be able to understand the language in the beginning because I was not a space individual. And that's where I met Hank. So, Hank, there's our background. Uh, do you have an outline for us? Um, kind of, yes. So I, <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought you might be interested in uh, uh, hearing a little bit about my business career since everybody asks me about that. So we'll start with number one would be your business career? Yeah, computer games. Okay, uh, but we'll hold on. Just we'll call it business career. Yep. Yeah. And, number two. Uh, number two is uh, my mission number one, which is to fix this planet to fix this planet, mine too. And okay, uh, number three. Number three is to make a backup of life by going and colonizing other planets. Other planets, number four. And we don't actually have to spend a lot of time on this one because it's just there to uh, keep the other ones um, seeming like they're 
eminently doable. And then okay. of course to figure out how the universe ends and do something about it. <laughs> how the universe ends and to do something about it. Now, is there a number five? No, no, four is enough. Okay. Actually, you know, I, I skipped one. I, I skipped mission number two, which is to end war. And okay. I haven't gotten around to doing it, doing anything about it. It's left over from, from my days as, as a high school student protesting against the war in Vietnam in New York. Okay, so we'll, we'll kind of put that into a two point, uh, 2.1. So tell me, uh, the, the topic thinking bigger, bigger, and bigger is big. So share with me, teach me, teach me what I need to know to think bigger. Oh, wow. Teach you what to, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure I can teach you anything, but, uh, <laughs> you, know, so, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, when, whenever you're in something and you think that whatever it is that you're working on and you're going to accomplish that and so on and so forth, like while you're at it, think about what would be the bigger thing that you could do that would be much bigger than what you were just working on, for example. You know, how, does, how do you go from uh, the biggest thing that you can think of to something bigger? And it, it turns out that going bigger often is, is about the same how I could say, level of difficulty as going big in the first place. Whatever it is that you're on, you might think this is big, but doing something that's 10 times as big is about the same amount of work. So you might as well do the 10 times bigger thing. So, I, I mean, I can go through each of those, my business career, my missions, and kind of like run through how I went from big to bigger to Bigger. Well, but I'm going to want to know, just like we talked about, I'm going to want to know how I can take what, I, what we're doing, what I'm doing, and what in, so that I could understand how to make that transitional leap. So I'm going to be pushing you through this, obviously. Push me, push me. Yes, I mean, push you. Just, I mean, you got to just like, like think outside of your box that you're in, because, you know, no matter what you're doing, you, you, you've got sort of, You've, you've built a box around yourself. You're, you're inside of your a room of your own creation. And like everything that happens to you happens in that room. But guess what? That room is pretty tiny compared to the room that, first of all, it could be. And if you look at beyond the room, like beyond the building or beyond the city or beyond the country or beyond the planet, you know, there's always a bigger way of, of, of looking at something. And why not? Well, I'm, but if we took, I mean, we've got Project Moon Hut. We're designing plans for man to live on the moon. We're looking to accelerate the Earth and space-based ecosystem. We're taking all of that information, all those endeavors, and turning it back on Earth so that Earth, we improve life on Earth for 50 million species. <sighs> how do we get bigger? <laughs> how, how do we get bigger? Well, yeah. I mean, if we're going to go through my missions, mission yep. number three, well, let's say you want to start with three. Or do you want to start with some of the things in your career? Or do you want to jump to three? I could do that I don't too. Know. You're asking me right now how do yep. you think bigger than fixing the planet? And I'm just yep. about that kind of leads me to three and four. Okay. In my business career, where would you like to go? Let's start with how do we think bigger? Let's just go right there and then we can come back to the others and you can interject them throughout. 
All right. So, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about my business career and, and I sort of backed into it. I, I, when I was, uh, gosh, in my twenties, I worked for my father in the, in the gem business. And, uh, I hated working for my father because he never gave me any like real responsibility. And whenever I had an idea, he's, you know, he always said his idea was better. What do I know? And so on and so forth. And he did things terribly wrong. Like he never paid taxes. He never did any accounting. Really? Oh man, are you kidding me? He was uh, he was smuggling stuff from you know from country to country. I mean, he was just living in his own world, and you know he would do things like make an appointment with a really important gem dealer, and then be two hours late. I just just <laughs> blew, I, I just could not believe that this was my role model for how to do business. So. Um, I, I, so my first thing is to, to get away from his business. It just so happened that I was in Japan and uh, personal computers had come out. And so, hey, you know what? Personal, I, I can program. I majored in computer science and I minored in Dungeons and Dragons back at the University of Hawaii. And uh, so I thought I can put those two together because I, I went to Akihabara, which is the, the electronic center at that time, the electronic center of Japan to find out what was going on. And I looked at the computer games and there weren't any role-playing games. And I thought, oh man, this is a chance. I can make a role-playing game and I'll be ahead of everybody because nobody knows about role-playing games. And, uh, you know, in the US there, were, there was um, uh, Ultima and Wizardry. There were already role-playing games on, on the Apple uh, and, uh, and the Commodore and the TRS-80, the, the TRS-80 was Temple of Abshai. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just make one of those. And so I got started. Well, wait, wait, bit. wait, wait. So here's an idea for thinking big. My question to you would be, how did you just come up with, how do you come up with a role-playing game? Like that? at that point, I believe in history, they, they weren't doing it. So did something trigger you? Were you challenged by something? Did you learn something? Did you see something? What was the mental jump that caused you to say, let's do this? I got to say that it was just at that point in time, it was the beginning of my career we're talking about here. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I know that there were, were, were the, was a car invented yet? We're talking about a boatload of naivety. That's yep. what was going on at that moment in time. What I didn't know is that the reason there were no role-playing games in Japan because Dungeons and Dragons didn't exist in Japan. And so I was making a game that nobody would know how to play uh, because nobody knew what a role-playing game was. So instead of like the, the US-based role-playing games, which basically got the people who played the paper game, the, bo the, the board game of Dungeons and Dragons and pulled them into a computer version of the, of the board game, I didn't have a board game to pull people out of. And so when, when SoftBank, well, I went, so I, I started writing this game, I got halfway and uh, I, I took it to SoftBank and I said, can you introduce me to a publisher? And they said, you know what? All you got to do is get your wife to answer the phone. You know, you can do, just do this yourself. You don't need uh, a publisher. I thought, shoot, okay. So I, of course, that was a that was biggest BS ever. Um, and they said, well, guarantee we'll we'll buy you three thousand copies of your game at Christmas. And I thought, okay. So I worked my ass off to finish the game until Christmas. 
And meanwhile, I, I had a friend of mine from, from Thailand, from the gem business came by and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm making this game. And uh, uh, he said, what, what, how, what, how much money do you have to do this? I said, well, I don't have any money. He says, well, how do you expect to do this as well? And I was just didn't know anything about business at the time. So anyway, I talked him into putting $50,000 into my business. And I, uh, and for that, I gave him half the company. <laughs> that was in, that was in 1980, 1976, 19, what was it? 1983. It was 1983. Yep. I figured it was about there. Yeah. 1983. So um, <clears throat> I said, I said $50,000 and, and he says, boy, you really don't know anything about business, do you? And he said he would come, he would do the accounting and, and do the business end of it. And I just had to make the game. I said, fine deal. Sucker never showed up once. I, <laughs> so I ended, up, I ended up building that business. I didn't speak read or write Japanese, by the way, just FYI. Yeah, okay. And you still I, don't? I had to hack. No, I, I can speak uh, and understand Japanese, but I refuse to study you know, the Japanese characters. I think those, those are hieroglyphs and they, they belong in the history books. They don't belong in, in a keyboard. How do they type in the kanji? They, they have a QWERTY keyboard and they translate whatever you type on the alphabet into yep. kanji. Why mm -hmm. the hell do you bother translating it? Just keep it, you know, and then they say, well, there is the, there's the, you don't know the true meaning of a word if you don't see the, the you know. Character, the yeah, yeah. Character. I said, how do you guys talk? I mean, you talk to each other. There is no, no kanji or Chinese characters floating around while you're talking. You're, it's only sounds. So s turn those sounds into phonetic alphabet and be done with it. Anyway, it just pissed me off because, you know, I, I, English is my second language. I, I, I came from the Netherlands to, um, to the States when I was 11 years old, and I didn't have to learn how to read because I already knew how to read. I just needed to know how to speak English. And so you could just go to another language and use the same alphabet. It's just like going to another country and having to use an, a, a different numbering system. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, sorry. I, no, I, no, no worries. I digress. So um, come Christmas, the, you know, we had, I had spent my advertising budget and I had done some, a couple of full page ads in, in, in computer magazines and we got absolutely no reaction. We got one phone call during the first month and three phone calls during the second month of advertising full pages. So I'd blown my advertising budget. SoftBank says, sorry, we're only going to order 600 copies for, the, for Christmas. And, I, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is the end of the business. We're going to run out of money real soon. I wrote the game myself, but by that time, I had a couple of other people working for me. So it's January, and we're like dead in the water. Uh, product is not moving. Nobody knows what Black Onyx is. And so I asked my guys, so how do people in Japan find out about computer games? As well, um, they read about them in the magazines. As well, how do you get into the magazine? As well, you 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 have a hit game, and then the magazine guys come and interview you and your company. As well, that's obviously not happening. So what are we gonna do? So I said, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do it backwards. You're gonna call every magazine, make an appointment. I'm gonna go and visit them and show them how to play my game, which I did. I traveled to Japan. I went to every magazine. And in February, so the, from January, from when I went to visit them to February, 
they all played my game and fell in love with my game. So it takes them, so the cycle is on, by, by March, um, the, the, the magazine articles all come out. And then, so in March, SoftBank call, calls me up and orders 10,000 units. In April, SoftBank calls me up and orders 10,000 units. I was the number one game in Japan in 1984. After that, like, killer so, so you you did you did something that there's an assumption made here. You did something for some reason that made you bigger, and it is that you turned something upside down. Now I'm gonna go backwards. You. There was no Dungeon and Dragons, which meant that you came from the US, you understood this Dungeons and Dragons, and you carried that mental construct, that cultural uh, entity over the ocean to Japan. And that became your impetus to think differently and to start a game. What made you say, well, let's do this backwards? Because that, if that was so easy, everybody would do it. When you're, when you're an entrepreneur, when you're in a business, things are never going to go the way you expect them to go. And if you have the flexibility to think outside the box, to think differently, to do something different, think of a new way of doing something, pivot, whatever it is, if you have the, how can I say, the balls to do that, then you have a chance. If yeah, like- I, I know that. The challenge is, I personally am, well, the challenge is it's not so easy. So, for example, for me, Project Moon Hut started because someone from NASA said something, and I just said, you're doing it all wrong, in, in summary. And I said, you're trying to solve a thousand Rubik's Cubes at once. And it came from a question. I'd spent nine hours with NASA. I didn't know anything about space. And they said they wanted to solve for a woman being pregnant on the moon. And my answer was, no, 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 no. You don't solve for that right now. We're explorers. We have technology to stop that. You're solving these thousand Rubik's cubes. Let me show you a different path. But it was that question. I can go back to that comment that he made. What was the, was it, does, was it desperateness? Does everybody have to be desperate to be flexible so that you could decide to turn it around? There was something in you that made you do this differently. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can look at, you know, many of those occasions during my, my business career where, or, or, or even my post-business career where I just said, hey, let, let's look at this from a completely different direction. And, and take a different path. I mean, you, again, you don't want to be stuck on the, you want to be able to take a right turn or a left turn instead of just going straight. Uh, because going straight is the obvious thing and everybody does it. And, and, and any, everybody, how can I say, is not, all the people who are really successful took a turn somewhere that other people didn't take. And I'm going to bet you that everybody took that turn because something knocked them, something hit them, something spontaneously combusted in front of them. Uh, I, I started my second company because I kicked my first partner out of my first company. He didn't do any work. And I was like you, carrying everything. And 
a company called, we were desperate for money uh, the, and said, could you get us a product? I looked up back then the Thomas Register, like an internet book. I found a company, ca I called them and they said, well, if you order from us, we'll give you net 30 terms. So I turned to my girlfriend now wife and I said, because they asked me, what's the name of the company? I said, what's the name of our company? And she said, I don't know, just call it at your service. <laughs> and at your service started, it was changed, but at your service started because we got net 30 terms, we needed the money and someone wanted a product. There That's how the company started. It was not, it, it was not an intelligent decision. It was desperation. Well, okay. So, so if you want to talk desperation, uh, <laughs> desperation, yeah. So a lot of things, and you'll find out later how do I, how I found my missions in life uh, is sort of a, um, an earlier desperation story. And it's, um, you know, I was 18, moved to Hawaii. Of course, I'm going to learn how to surf. And here I am surfing on the North Shore. I'm, you know, I've, I've only been surfing for, uh, you know, a couple of months and I'm on the, I'm out there on a day. And it, this is, this is in the days before they could predict how big the waves were going to be on any given day. Okay. So you could go out in the morning and then it would get bigger and bigger and bigger because the, the weather report didn't tell you that there, the waves are going to become 12 feet by the afternoon. Okay, that, yeah. that just didn't exist. So here I am, I'm out there and all of a sudden the waves are starting to get bigger and bigger. I'm going, Oh shit. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not able to serve these big waves. And I had to make, I had to make my choice. So here, here I am. Uh, I wipe out on a, on a, I don't know, 10, 12 foot wave, whatever it is. And they measure waves in, from the back in Hawaii. So that's probably, a, that wave was way over my head. And okay. uh, so, so I lost my board. This is in the day before bungees. Bungees didn't exist yet. So that means that your board is not attached to your legs somehow by a little, you know, uh, piece of rubber. <laughs> so there, there I can see my board wash up on shore in the distance. Oh, really? It that went that far. It just kept on going. Oh yeah, I mean we're talking about I'm I'm in the white water now. Okay, I'm in the white water and and uh, so I've I've gone over the what what it means to go over the falls. Uh, you're in a wave and you go up and then it dr drops you down. You're going in. You're tumbling. You're like in a giant uh, washing machine and it drops you down. And when you're in the in the white water, white water is lighter than regular water because it has bubbles in it yeah so if you weigh it it weighs less so that means you don't float in it so here i am i'm in there i'm trying to figure out which way is up i'm using my my energy to try to try to get to the surface gasp for air and i did this like i went over the falls three times in a row and finally i'm floating and now i'm being i'm on the reef and i'm i'm in this riptide and it's pulling me away to the channel, which is going to pull me back outside. If I'm back outside and I'm already tired and here I am and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And then I get a cramp. Can you imagine? Yes, like I, I've, I've used up my energy I've, I'm, and, and I'm have a moment of clarity. I said, you know what? I am not going to die today. I still have stuff to do. I actually thought this and then my, and then I have a moment of clarity and it's okay. So what's going on here? Where, which muscles are not working? Where do I, where do I have still have strength? And I changed my stroke. I, I switched to a backstroke. Uh, 
And so I found new muscles that still have had like oxygen or energy left in them. And I back mo stro stroke my way through the, uh, the riptide onto the beach. I crawl on the beach like freaking rock Robinson Crusoe. And I like, how can I say collapsed? I, yeah. I crawled onto the beach and collapsed. And I, I lay there for like 15 minutes. I couldn't move a muscle. And, uh, but I survived. Hello. So you, sometimes you got to make that decision that you're going to survive and you just got to make up your mind because I mean, I could have easily panicked at that point instead of like figuring it out and I could have drowned. There would have been no one there to save me for sure. Six minutes under, under the water and you got brain damage. So I would have been history. I didn't have, I was out there by myself. My there was no friend watching out. So, so something pushed you. So when it came to this position, because you had to think bigger, you had a failing business, <clears throat> there had to have been something that made you say, excuse me to anybody out there who's listening, I'm just going to, fuck it. Well, here, I here. have to do <laughs> something to make this business survive. And, and I'm picking on this specifically because it was a bigger decision. It was, do you fail? Which most companies do fail. And you decided to make a drastic change, even counter to the industry's norms. Was there a historical precedence to that? Did you read about someone who did it? Yeah. Were you scared at the moment so much that you were willing to try it? Were, there was something, we, there had to have been a trigger well, okay, so so two things. One, one is I hate losing. Okay. Okay, I hate losing. I hate losing pr pretty much more than anything. I'm very competitive. And the person that I didn't want to lose to at that moment in time was my father. Ah, yeah. My father with his crappy business of ethics, whatever you want to call them, was still a serial entrepreneur. He would start new business, start new business, and they would like fall by the wayside as he went for new businesses. And I said, I'm not gonna do this and I'm gonna prove myself. Cause he was kind of laughing at me that I was doing this computer game. I mean, here I'm, what am, what am I doing? I mean, he didn't understand what I was doing at all. He'd never played computer games. He didn't understand what computers were and so on and so forth. So I just didn't wanna lose to my father. That was the, and, and by the way, that was probably the reason that my first business, um, I had trouble in my first business because once I got to the point where I'd beaten my father, I'd made more money than him. You know, if you're so smart, uh, why don't you make more money than me? That kind of thing, you know? So yeah. I wanted to make more money than him in the worst way. And I did. And once I accomplished that, I kind of lost interest in the business. Got I'd already done what I, was, what I set out to do. You weren't, you, you weren't, your target wasn't the business. Your target was to your head. By the way, here's, here's a phrase that I've had since I'm 12. I'm not competitive as long as I win. <laughs> and, and people, you could take it multiple ways. Winning means you and I winning. When we were younger, my son would play basketball with me. And he, at 12 years old, I was, 200 pounds or a hundred and some odd kilo. I'm a big boy. And 
my 12 year old would have challenges, but if he won, if he felt like he won, I won too. So winning is not always that it has to be my win. It could be my team. It could be my family. It could be people around me, community, animals, whatever you would like. So that's one of mine, not competitive as long as I win, but I have mother issues and father issues too. So I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> okay. So, so, you know, I wrote the first couple of games for the company and we were, I was like all of a sudden famous. I could actually buy a car. Uh, in fact, I got a very nice car. Uh, and, and so I, I was, uh, I had a lifestyle all of a sudden, uh, when, you know, independent, my dad never paid me. I worked for him for six years. He never paid me. <laughs> so ridiculous. Like anyway. No, no, it's not. I, I, I won't even, I won't even go there. I should be laying down on a couch. Yeah. So anyway, so, uh, I wrote the first couple of games and, and then I, I, I hired a team of people to make the third game, which by the way, never happened because I wasn't the one doing it for whatever reason. I didn't know how to run a team. But fortunately for me, at the same time that I was doing that, I started traveling around the world looking for games to bring to Japan. And I licensed a whole bunch of games. I, lic I licensed Electronic Arts original games. I published Star Wars games in, in Japan. I had European games. And one of those games, which I found at the Consumer Electronics Show, was a little game called Tetris. Wait, wait. So before you get there, gonna interrupt right. again. What okay. made you decide to shift from being a game producer to a game uh, acquirer oh, okay. or a salesperson or whatever you wanna call it? Because that's no, another big jump. So I went from being a developer to a publisher. Publisher, and, okay. And, and, and the reason was is because my, um, you know, I, I was capable of turning out a game per year and I had a marketing team and I had a sales team um, by this time. And, and basically they were busy once, once a year when I finished my game and the rest of the time they were not. So I thought they need something to do with the rest of the year. So we should, we should license a bunch of games, have them translated to, to the Japanese computers and then, and then they'll be busy all the time. That's the way I thought about it. Otherwise they would be wasting time was that something that some that some you saw somebody else do, and that was the inspiration for it? Did you wake up one moment, one day, and say, mm, "I need to go license and be a publisher"? Was it what? What was that spark again? Because there's always a spark. I don't know. I, I you know, it's it's when I decided that after two years of making games that I that I couldn't make games and run a company at the same time that I, I, and I chose running the company because I thought I was too old to be making games for the rest of my life. It's, it's a sort of a stamina issue. You know, programmers that, that, that program games, they work day and night. I work day and night. So Never you were, the, the, the impetus for you was frustration. You were working day and night. You had a team, you were paying the bills and you saw that this was a dead end and you needed to make a change. Is that, fa uh, is that fair? I could have hired a CEO, but I uh -huh. made the conscious choice that I wanted to be the CEO. So it was just a different, I'm the oldest of, of eight boys and one girl. So wow. I've always been the big brother. I've always been the team leader. I've always been the one that everybody looks up to. And so I was always in charge. And so I, you know, if, I, if, if I'm in a situation 
with a bunch of people trying to figure out to do something, I'll take charge. I have no, no problem taking charge. Uh, and, and, okay. So that's very clear. You had, you wanted to make sure for your, that your family saw you, you were the leader. You'd always been educated or in positions of leadership. So you were able to take those skills and the frustration. And you said, I'll take over the CEO role and I'll license. And I'll travel and license. So anyway, yeah. So I did. Okay. So the Tetris story. Yeah. So Tetris was uh, at a booth at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And um, so six months later, I had licensed Tetris for all the computer platforms uh, in Japan. There were eight different computers. They were not compatible. Um, and uh, the family computer, the Nintendo, which had just had come out the year before. So... Um, yeah, I, you're going to love me. You're going to love me at the end of this. Yeah, you'll probably never speak to me again. How did you negotiate that deal? Why did it take six months? How did you introduce it? How did you know this was the game? <sighs> okay, oh, well, I know, I know, I know. Okay, so I'm at the Consumer Electronics. So there's hundreds of monitors with people lined up waiting their turn to play some game. Yep. And so basically as a licensee, Meaning somebody who licenses games, I stand in line, play a game for a couple of minutes, try to make up my mind whether I like this game or not, and then have a conversation with the publisher of that game, see if I if the, the Japanese rights are available. That's generally how it works. And, and if you've got hundreds of games and you've got like a couple of minutes per game, you basically spend a couple of minutes on one game and then you go to the next game and to the next game and to the next game. Well, I found myself in line at the Tetris machine for the fourth time. This is obviously a huge waste of time because here I am, I'm getting hooked on a game on the floor of the Consumer Electronics Show when I'm supposed to be doing business and finding games. So, but by the time I played it for the fourth time, I realized I was getting hooked on this game. I don't get hooked on games very easily. So I got hooked and you know, if you're going to license a game, you got to have, uh, you got to know that somebody's going to want to play that game. And if you want to play that game, that's at least one person that really wants to play that game. And I looked at that game and it's so simple and so clear and so different from the other games that I thought this, I, you know, I understand this. I can, I can do this. I play a Japanese board game called Go. In fact, I yep. play it with my father. He was a sixth degree black belt and I'm a third degree black belt. It's the only, I never did get to his level in Go, but I competed with him. And Go is black and white stones. And unlike chess where the, the, you know, the king, the queen, the bishop, the rook, they all have different shapes and different powers. The Go stones are black and white and they all have the same power. Yet Go is a much deeper game than chess. I mean, it's like an order of magnitude more complicated and more interesting. The, the, the number is there is just, there's more moves than there are atoms in the universe. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, one, it's 19 times 19. Uh, that's 181 times one, 180 times so on and so forth. Yeah, you can look at it that way. That's one way of looking at it. And so chess, chess can be done brute force. You know, a computer can look ahead in chess and find a checkmate in the future. Whereas Go doesn't work that way. It becomes astronomical very quickly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, 
Tetris is that kind of game. It's very simple, little squares, nothing, not, nothing weird going on. It's just obvious what's going on on the screen. So anyway, I fell in love with the game, brought it back to uh, Japan. Everybody in the company started playing it. I mean, like when I say everybody, I'm talking about the secretaries. This is not, this is not a game that is limited to the gamers in the company. Uh, this is a, all of a sudden, everybody in, in the company is interested in playing this game. And what, the reason it took me six months was um, there was a long list of copyright notices on the, uh, you know, like who had the copyrights. And basically I went as high upstream as I could because each time somebody else gets in between, they're taking a piece of the action. And so by the time, you know, by the time you rent, if you license it from somebody who got the license from somebody who got the license, you know, but you're all this food chain that you have to support uh, means that the royalties are expensive. So I, my, uh, the farthest I could find up the food chain was Mirrorsoft. And this Mirrorsoft is the um, company owned by Robert Maxwell. If Robert Maxwell rings a bell. He's the guy who jumped off a boat after losing his, uh, uh, his entire work, workforce's pension fund, multi-billion dollars of pension fund. The mirror, this guy was like Murdoch, a, pu a publishing magnet. And uh, anyway, that was his company. And uh, well, these are, these are the days of faxes for Christ's sakes. I sent these guys faxes and I never, for months I sent them faxes and never got back. And finally I get a fax back. This fax no longer belongs to Mirrorsoft. It's like, what the? <laughs> and so that's what took the time. So then I started phoning and finally I got to talk to a human. And they said, you know, um, so-and-so is coming to Japan in June and they're they're going to make the, the tetris deal and i said well i know that guy <laughs> that guy was the guy who owns the company who ran the company that i played the game at and, at the consumer electronics show i knew him anyway his so you were all the way back to the guy that you were talking to originally <laughs> yeah really <laughs> so so he went to the biggest software company in japan who had basically paid him to make a flight simulator. And so he had to go to them first. Name of the company was ASCII. Now ASCII stands for American Standard Code for Inter Information Interchange. What a dumbass name for a Japanese company. It, it, it absolutely means nothing. So anyway, this is ASCII. And ASCII had made a deal with Microsoft. They rep represented Microsoft in Japan. So it's ASCII Microsoft, a big company. So he went to them and said, you know, how about Tetris? And they looked at it and they said, uh, they said, no, they, we're going to pass on this one. It, it's too retro. Yeah. <laughs> so you were lucky. It's 1988. And, <laughs> and the biggest company in Japan says Tetris is too retro. Well, it's like Pong on steroids, which is still old. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's like retro. You could say baseball is retro. Yeah, it's true. a game that was played in the 1800s. So yeah. what? You know, it doesn't mean anything. Aren't you glad they didn't understand that? Oh my God, you have no idea. Of course. So anyway, um, that you know what happened with the licensing rights to Tetris is a long story. Well, so, well, tell me, tell me the pieces for that because the first thing that comes to mind, and I'm thinking, going still, we're on the age of infinite, is bigger and bigger and bigger. Is there's steps that you have taken? You are willing to pursue six months to go after something which many individuals would quit at. 
you were able to identify that the person, finally get someone on the phone that you identified who this was. You had a lucky break that ASCII had not taken this on, but you still had negotiated a deal. And that deal had to be the right deal so you weren't losing royalty uh, so that you could be extremely profitable. How okay, did you- let me, let me get to the big, bigger picture here. Okay. okay. So in 1988, Nintendo came out with Game Boy. And I, and I thought to myself, wow, Tetris is the perfect game for Game Boy because the screen is small. The number of dots you have on the screen is limited. And so most of the games that are on the, like the, on the video game, the bullets are so small that you can barely see them on this tiny screen. So they don't translate very well. But Tetris, the pieces are squares. They're easy to see. So it's like the perfect game. And it's portable. You can play it anywhere. So um, I started looking at, at the contracts that I had entered into, found that, that handhelds were specifically excluded for whatever reason. I don't know what the, what the Russians were thinking when they were making these license agreements. So, I mean, I, I could spend the rest of the day talking about this story, but on, in February of 1989, I got on a plane to Moscow not knowing anybody in Moscow and just landed there and said, I'm going to find out who has the rights to Tetris. I'm going to license the rights uh, to Tetris for Game Boy. And then I'm going to go back to uh, the States and license it to Nintendo. And they're going to publish Tetris all over the world. So, so the guy that you met at the CES consumer electronics show was the guy who you created the contract with, but now you're circumventing this individual and you're going to Moscow to find a higher upstream individual. Well, nobody had the rights to Game Boy. I knew that. Oh, okay. It wasn't like, like somebody had the rights to, to Game Boy and I took it away from them. These were rights that had not been spoken for by anybody. And so actually, actually, before I went, I, I talked to the president of Nintendo USA. And this is, this is probably the biggest deal I ever made in my life at that moment. And I go, you know, Mr. Arakawa, you should include Tetris with every Game Boy that you sell. Because I know when you release a new hardware platform, you always include a game with the first, I don't know how many units. And he said, why should I include Tetris? I have Mario. And I said, look, if you want little boys to buy your Game Boy, include Mario. If you want everyone to buy your Game Boy, include Tetris. And you can include Tetris and then you can sell Mario afterwards. And he, he uh, called in his, uh, his game people and so on and they, they kind of agreed. So I, on a handshake, you know, I said, he asked me, uh, so what's the deal? I said, well, I'm, the deal is I, if you tell me that, that you want this game, I will get on a plane and go to Moscow and get these rights. Um, so I need you to, and I thought of the biggest number I could think of, um, guarantee me a million dollars and pay me a, a dollar per unit. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's a lot of money. Head. He shook my head. And but you... I, so you, it's like the Microsoft uh, deal, was it how many dollars a game? $16 a game? I don't remember the uh, per, per unit for the application. Uh, 
I forgot what it was. Uh, don't quote me on it. So you didn't have Moscow yet. So you went to them first and you said, will you do this if I can get this? Yes. And they agreed and shook your hand and that's okay. And that was enough. That was it. It took me, it took me like three days to find Electronorg Technica, the, uh, the software and hardware ministry, because, you know, you were dealing with the uh, government. It's like going to North Korea and, and trying to license something. They, they didn't have license. They didn't have intellectual property. They didn't believe in an intellectual property. They, and yet they had the rights to this game. And I tracked them down and negotiated with them. I was there on a tourist visa. But you didn't even know how much it was going to cost you. So you're asking for a dollar a game and a million dollar guarantee. But you're not even sure if Electronica Technica is going to give you a name. Oh, of course, of course, of course. But I mean, look, uh, if a, a dollar in in the U.S. You know, I, I'm going to say $1,000 in the U.S. is like $100 in, in, in the Soviet Union. It's completely different. Oh, I know. I've, I've, worked in, I've worked in Moscow. I've worked in St. Petersburg. But you were taking a gamble that that math would work out, and you just figured based upon oh, yeah. the, the ruble. And I don't know if the ruble worked. was back then. You yeah. just said it would work. Yeah. So I offered them 25 cents and $150,000. And I mean, that's what we negotiated at the end. Um, and uh, so got the deal. And that's when I became good friends with Nintendo. I mean, yeah. real good friends. <laughs> Obviously, every month or uh, however that was cut. They sold, they sold uh, 30 million units of Tetris on, uh, packed in with Game Boy and then another 30 million standalone box product. So it was, so well, it was kaching time. So you, um, the challenge for, and let's take it to people, individuals who are going to start a company in the space industry. The challenge for people who are going to start any type of enterprise is that these stories are aspirational they are fantastic. They get people excited that they can do it. Yet so many things had to line up so that you ended up getting this big win. There are a lot of individuals who try to do the exact same thing and they fall flat on their face. Well, so, so here, so, the, so let's go back to surfing. And yeah. <laughs> if you, if, um, it, you have to learn how to paddle before you can actually stand up and catch even the tiniest of waves. And then you have to fall off your board a whole bunch of times. And then finally you get the balance right. And then you start surfing bigger and bigger and bigger waves. If you were to go out there and try to surf a big wave without knowing how to surf, you would like die. And so that's kind of how business is. You shouldn't be afraid of falling off your board, making mistakes or, you know, or swallowing some water. You, you just have to get back up your, on, on your board and try it again, try it again until you know how to do it. Then when the big wave appears, you actually know what to do. And that is kind of where I was when I went to Moscow. I kind of, by that time, I'd done enough deals that I, that I knew how to do a licensing deal. I knew how to convince them. I know how to explain how the business works, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
Yeah, this is a big advantage I had because um, my I lived in Japan, um, and at that time my Japanese really was still really shitty. So I um, I learned how to speak English as a second language, <laughs> meaning use fewer words, don't use big words, mm -hmm. use a smaller vocabulary, and lo and behold, these people who've been studying English but can't speak it can all of a sudden understand you. This is the thing that, that most Americans can't, can't do. All right. I remember Nintendo went to, to, to Moscow later and they tried to speak to the Russians. They weren't communicating. Yeah. They were using big words and, and when the Russians didn't understand, they would speak louder. It's not about speaking louder. It's about using fewer words and, and being clear and speaking slowly anyway. Um, well, uh, there's, I think there's two other pieces to the language side. One of them is the Chinese language does not have this, a subject. So there's a lot of collaborative conversation with it. And this, uh, so the dialogue is different. When they learn English, they learn that there's a subject I. And the second part is that in Asia, having lived there for 10 years, everything's negotiable which is not very indicative, for example, of the American system or many European countries uh, and uh, many other countries around the world, but you can negotiate almost anything. And so negotiation is a lifestyle when it comes to uh, the Asia Pacific or Asia region. Hmm. So maybe there was something there that also helped you. Could be, could be. I, I mean, I can't, I, 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 don't know everything that made me who I am or gave me the abilities that I have, whatever they are. Um, so anyway, uh, let's get past this, uh, the business sure. story. Cause um, you know, uh, fast forward, um, I friend the, the guy who made uh, Tetris. I help him come to the US, uh, get him his, rescue him and his family and uh, Basically, we formed the Tetris company and we've been controlling the Tetris company ever since. We still control it today. Um, and he basically, we, he, he lives not far for 20 minutes from here. We get together every other day and, and drink and talk story about whatever. So we're not only business friends, we are friend friends. And uh, so, he, so here's what happened. <clears throat> it's 2002. And um, games start to come out on mobile phones. And these, in those days, they were basically text-based games because phones didn't have graphics. And the first phone that could play a game was about to come out because it's a phone that you could take a picture. Can you imagine that? You could take a picture. And if you take a picture with the phone, there's a little screen where you can see the picture. Well, if you have a screen and a CPU that can handle all that data, you actually have a little game machine. And so those, those early phones that could, could take pictures could also play games. And the first one was coming out from Sprint. And I, I went around to uh, try to find a licensee for Tetris for mobile phones for the US. And this is after I'd gotten a million dollar advance out of Japan. The biggest advance I could find in the US was $25,000. And I'm going like, you guys have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. So I felt like role-playing games in Japan in 1983 was games for mobile phones in the U.S. in 2002. 
And I said, okay, well, I can do this. So I rolled up my sleeve and I, I made a company, Blue Lava Wireless, and we made games for mobile phones. The company that offered me $25,000 advance for Tetris in 2002 bought my company in 2005, three years later, they went public and they, they, they raised $68 million. I got the entire $68 million plus I got 4 million shares of Jamdat stock, which one year later turned into cash. So this was, this was my big exit. Uh, and this happened in 1980, uh, sorry, in 2005 which basically leads me to the second half of our program. Because what happened is a month after I sold my company, I found myself in an ambulance on the way to a hospital with 100% blockage of the Widowmaker, which is the biggest artery in your heart. Yep. I was on my way out. And the first thing I thought, I was looking at the ceiling, I said, you gotta be freaking kidding me. I haven't spent any of the money yet. <laughs> I, I know a guy who sold his company for a tremendous amount of money. And a week later, he uh, got hit on a motorcycle and died. It's, it's so ridiculous. You know, yeah, it's, so, it's like he was 41 or 48 or something. Okay, so yes, a week later. Yep. And I said, no, I'm not going. I still have stuff to do. This is the second time I said that. <laughs> and so I, I have two stents. Um, uh, it, it completely solved my problem. And I'm, I'm in the, in the hospital in the recovery room and I'm like, what did I mean by stuff? And this time I got to seriously thinking about it. And so I said, well, look, you know, my kids are all finished with school. They all started their own family, so they don't need me anymore. I've made enough money, put enough money away. So my wife doesn't need me anymore. So Actually, all the things that I've been working for all this time, they're already done. So what did I mean by stuff? I still have stuff to do. And so I actually seriously thought about what is it that's going to piss me off if I didn't do uh, something about it by the end of my life, you know, at the end of my, the next time. And I came up with my bucket list and my missions in life. The first one uh, came to me in the back of the newspaper. It was a little article it is in Hawaii for Christ's sakes, <laughs> tiny ass article. It says, uh, oh, by the way, we're going to kill all the coral in the world by the end of the century. I'm going, you idiots. Do you have any idea what that means? What, what, what's causing that? It's, car it's carbon dioxide going into the ocean, causing ocean acidification. Basically, it, the ocean will dissolve coral faster than coral can make coral. I said, you know what? It's not only coral that depends on that, you know, on that <laughs> material. It's also all the shellfish and it's also plankton. You're talking about collapsing the whole entire ecosystem in the ocean. That's what you're talking about. And you're just like, it, it's, it's back. It's not even front page news in Hawaii. So my first mission is to end the use of carbon-based fuel, which has expanded, you know, because you start, you start off, you know, thinking big, I'm going to end the use of carbon-based fuel. That was my mission. And uh, to, that, to that end, I created the, the Blue Planet Foundation in Hawaii and, and uh, not knowing how I was going to do this, but I said, we're going to end the use of carbon-based fuel in Hawaii. And we put a line in the ground. We, 
we actually managed to, to, do, to be the first state in the country to have a mandate of 100% renewable energy by 2045. You could say 2045, that's a long ass way in, in the future, but you have to decide when you wanna to get to zero and work towards that. And then, then you can take that date and move that date forward but if you start with the date that everybody can agree on, yes, sure, we can do it by 2045. And you know, 2045 was a negotiation. We won a 2040, the politicians won a 2050, and we settled 2045. Turns out 2045 is a perfect date because it's the 100th anniversary of the United Nations. So now we are looking at not just looking at doing it for Hawaii, which by the way, we're on track because we also followed up by having a uh, changing the business model of the, of the utility so that they make more money the quicker they switch to renewables. So guess what? Now their shareholders are on our side because we're gonna make them more money. And so basically they went from saying it's impossible to uh, coming out like six months later saying, hey, we can do this by 2040. And they're actually on track to do it some, by something like 2035. So. Hawaii is on track and we're now, the Blue Planet Foundation is helping um, the other states. We've, we've, we've helped 13 other states with their legislation, uh, the same legislation that we passed in Hawaii, which is 100% by some date. And so what's the, what's the next step? The next step is to go bigger because the United States, Big as it is, we're only 6% of the people in the world. And if we solve the problem here, it's just not gonna fix the problem in the world. Mm -hmm. We have to fix the rest of the world. So that's where I am now. I've, I've just uh, started the, the Blue Planet Alliance and we're going to do the same thing that we did in Hawaii, but do it with countries. So our office is across the street from the United Nations. We're going to work with the United Nations um, to figure out how to fix, well, <laughs> it turns out that it's not only climate change that needs to be fixed by 2045, but it's plastic in the ocean. It's God knows deforestation. The, 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 yeah, we call them in Project Moon Hut the six mega challenges, climate change, mass extinction, resource depletion, displacement, social and physical displacement, uh, exponential impact from things like overfishing and then political unrest. And th those are the six that we concentrate on in Project Moon Hut. Perfect. So we need to fix all of those things. And I think that we pick a date in the future by when we need to fix all those things. And I think the date is 2045. The, the sustainable development goals, they all, they all target 2030 and they started in 2015. So it's a 15 year cycle. So what's the next 15 years? The next 15 years in my mind have to be the regenerative development goals because we have to put back everything that we've taken. We have to fix everything that we've destroyed and then it makes sense for us to be sustainable. I ask individuals, I can ask you, you've got a date, but normally I ask individuals in the categories of our six mega challenges, I will say to them, okay, so you're working on cleaning the ocean. Yes. How long have you been working on it? 10 years. Yes. How you do? What are you doing? Where's, okay, okay, okay. And I listened to the whole story. And then I said, say to them, 
when will it be fixed? And they said, what do you mean? I said, you're working on something. You say you're working on it's going to be done. So my question is, on a global scale, when will it be done? Oh, come on, David. That's a big question. There's so many moving pieces. No, then you're not solving anything. You're doing something for economic reasons. You want to be a part of the community. You want to put your name impact on the end. I'm really asking a very serious question. If you're going to clean the oceans, tell me the day that the oceans will be cleaned. And, yeah, and I, I picked the date, uh, 2045, as the date everything needs to be fixed. And what's the date in your mind? Because I have a date. What's the date in your mind that it's beyond? That it's, it's, a, it's almost as if it's a lost cause. I don't even think about that. I, I, I mean, what's the point of thinking about that? Because a lot of individuals that I've spoken to have not asked themselves what happens if it's not solved, because they're not coming at it from they can solve it. They're coming at it from doing an activity. So I, one of the questions I ask individuals is, I say to them, take, take your life and add 40 years onto it. Okay, how old will you be? Okay, now you know how old you'll be. How old will your children be? So I'm 57. I'll have, I'll be 97. My kids are 28 and 26. So they'll be in their 60s. They'll, they could have grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. Okay, what will the world be like by then with climate change? And if we don't do, if we don't do enough. And people start to sometimes realize how soon that is. And I say, okay, so connect the dots for me. Tell me how you're solving it. So we can have climate change. We can have uh, deforestation stop. But if we still dump United States, the United States, for a variety of reasons, dumps 12 billion gallons of municipal waste into the ocean every day. 600 million bathtubs, uh, three, uh, 300 million bathtubs, 600,000 swimming pools. And it's municipal waste. It's not pesticide waste, agricultural waste, industrial waste, radioactive waste, mining waste, yada, yada, yada. It's just municipal waste, which is like getting a cup full of poison. You, United Europe is bigger in terms of population, but let's use it's the same. And let's take China and India, not picking, but they're big countries and they're easy to know. Well, that's 50 billion gallons of poison going into our ocean every day. If we don't solve 50 billion, not including all the other countries, that's, that's poison in the ocean. It's not just CO2, it's something bigger. And there's, there's blank stares when you ask, how is it going to be solved? So that's why I asked the question. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. So I, I, went, to, <laughs> I went to Denmark to uh, basically uh, uh, to look at a bunch of different things. And, uh, and they gave me a list of things uh, uh, that I could visit. And one of them was waste treatment, water treatment plant. And basically, so I, I, I looked at this plant and they said, you know what? Um, the water that we produce that goes into the ocean from here is drinkable. And so, I mean, it's, it's technologically. Yeah, it is. We already know how to do this. Um, we all, we already know when we build a moon base or the yeah, moon yeah, hut, yeah, just we, call it a, call it a moon hut. You yeah, got to say moon hut. Yeah. I can, whatever you want to call it. Oh, well, that's uh, a project moon hut. You're on our podcast. You just right, got right. <laughs> Give you the benefit of the doubt. You can have the moon hut. 
Yeah. So basically, we're not we're not going to be peeing out the door. Yeah. That stuff is like water is going to be unbelievably valuable, and any kind of organic material that exists on the moon is going to be unbelievably valuable. So we're not throwing anything out. Yeah. It's going to be circular. We're, we're yes. going to learn how to live with our own and reuse all of our own waste. Nature yes. does it. Yeah. Nature does this all the time. So we just have to copy nature and do it ourselves. It's just that we've been historically, you know, the world has been so big compared to us when we were just like a couple of million people in the world and spread out that no matter what kind of waste we produced, first of all, it was all organic and it's all just completely absorbed by nature, like immediately. Just like it absorbs, you know, all of the animals' waste. It can, it can process it. It's got yeah, the it, filtration it, through the soil. It goes to the aquifer. It's clean it through the process. Reused. And you end up with a beautiful stream that you can reuse. Yeah. So we have this technology. It's, it's, it's just kind of stupid economics that we, that we the, live in right now. The economics of it's okay for us to dig something out of the ground, use it for a while, and then throw it out. Yeah. And then cre create piles of garbage. I mean, that, that just has to stop. We, we're running out of room. You know, I live on an island in Hawaii, and the, the landfills are filling up. Uh, the, the recycling, is when, when, as far as I can tell, when si China stopped taking plastics and glass and all that. Oh, yeah. That's just like a <laughs> disaster. The, 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 the recycling material is just piling up somewhere in Hawaii, or it's ending up in landfill. It's just ridiculous. Well, we, have to, we have to do, again... I was in Denmark and every township has a recycling center and there are like 40 dumpsters, glass, a window glass, uh, other glass, uh, concrete, concrete with rebar. I mean, all these dumpsters there are there and then you just, you sort your garbage out and when, they, when one of them fills up, some industry comes and picks it up and has raw material. And yes, and so I was in Hong Kong when China said they were no longer going to take cardboard. They were going to change that policy. And not soon after, I don't know, a year or two later, I'm reading an article that China had built a 50-year dump and they had just closed it because it was full in 25 years. Mm. So they'd filled a 50-year dump that they had estimated would take 50 years. They did it in 25. And the challenge is... Our world is based upon growing individuals into consumers. It's moving them from tier one to tier two, tier two to tier three, and tier, tier to four. Four, which we're in, you and I, are the most wasteful of all of them. But yet the growth factor or the, the, the belief is tomorrow is better if you move up the ecological ladder, this ladder of four. The challenge is in Asia Pacific, you were in, uh, in Japan, I'm in uh, Hong Kong, wherever I went, the desire is to have more. And it's, I, I've shared this on the Redefining Tomorrow podcast. I have a friend in Xiaomen, which you might know Xiaomen, it's, uh, it's near Shanghai, south of Shanghai. This one woman and I are talking one day, we're having this great conversation. And I say, she says, I got to take a shower. And I said, no, no worries. I'll talk to you in what, 20 minutes. And she said, no. I said, what do you mean? No. She said, I take a 20 to 15 minute shower every day. And I, <laughs> and I said to her, using my righteousness from being a uh, tier four uh, country, 
And I started to talk and she slapped me so hard. My head is still spinning. She said, don't you come telling me how to live my life. You had this your entire life. You lived in this society. You've had all these opportunities. Now it's our turn. And the surprise was not that she said it. I connected a dot and the dot was this. Our media in tier four countries, meaning Hollywood, lifestyles rich and famous from Europe or wherever they may be, they've shown a lifestyle that has been led by tier four countries for the past few decades. And the Asia Pacific region has seen them. And this was propaganda to a way of life that people could have and should have. And so the challenges without being reductive or negative, saying you can't have, you can't do, you can't be, you can't this. How do you make them change? I.e., the name of the podcast, The Age of Infinite, infinite possibilities, infinite resources that come from space-based thinking, that come from space, that come from thinking like you just did. You can't just throw things out. So if you want to take a hot shower for 50 minutes, you might not have the water You take a bath for 15 minutes, you could take a shower. Why can't the device be right next to the tub? It cleans it immediately, sends off a small discharge, but the rest of the shower for the next 40 minutes is like tub water. It's cleaned enough, it's being filtered, Hmm. but it's a shower that you can have every day. And that's what you would do if you're gonna take a long shower on another planet, is you'd have to figure out a way to be able to have that lifestyle. Yeah, so um, <laughs> we're about to pivot to uh, you know to space mission number three. Yep. Um, so just to wrap on on uh, you know mission number one, you know I travel around around conferences and ask people. So if it was up to you, what would you fix about this world? What's the what's the most pressing problem? What should we fix? And as many people that I as I talk to, that's how many things I came up with. Yes, I know. <laughs> so, so, so rather than say, I'm going to fix this or whatever, or that, or whatever I think the biggest problem is, I'm, I'm coming at it from a systemic way of thinking about it. There's, there's the top-down way of thinking about it and the bottom-up way of thinking. And the top-down yeah. is that we have to make the list of things that need to get done and we need to get governments to pay attention and say, we're going to solve that problem by 2045, that Correct. kind of thing. Where mm-hmm. am I getting these, this list? I, there's a book called Drawdown. And uh, there is a uh, group of people that uh, are called Project Drawdown. And they, are, they made a list of the 100 things that, that we need to do to solve climate change, the 100 things, the most pressing things. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's like girls' education. <laughs> or that kind of stuff. I mean, it's right in, right up there. That would change things tremendously. The number one thing that needs to be fixed, by the way, <laughs> is not carbon dioxide. It's refrigerants. Yeah. And so, and it's like not, it's something that we are not even thinking about because it's not something that we can notice. With climate change, we can watch the climate kick our butts. But with the refrigerants, it's like invisible. Nobody even knows they exist or that they're a problem. So anyway, the U.S. uh, did that thing about 10 years ago or eight years ago where they shifted for air con, air conditioning units. They shifted to a different refrigerant that wasn't as dangerous. Well, it was because of Freon. It was because of the ozone hole. 
Correct. It turns out that the, the new refrigerant that replaced the, the, the Freon or whatever it was, the hydrochloral... Yeah, I don't remember the number. Carbon, yep. Whatever they are. Um, turns out to be a thousand times worse than, than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's insane. And so much for so much for politics and science. Yeah, combining. It's like, oh, we did a great thing. And they always look they always point to that and you know, how the world got together and and stopped the, the ozone hole from uh, from growing as as a as a huge success. <laughs> but, you know, like as long as the cure is not worse than the than the uh, than the disease, I think we can, we, we can move moving forward. But. In that case, the, the cure is like, oh my God. When you think about it, internal combustion was the cure for horses, you know? And, and so going from methane, which is horses, uh, you know, horses belching and, 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 and horse manure, basically, uh, how can I say, turning into methane, internal combustion is like 20 times better than that. Yeah, and, and, and you can and go a lot further. We've made a big improvement, but guess what? Now that we have like, what, how many billion cars in the world? Now that's become the problem. We need to have a solution that's 20 times better than that. And we will, and electric, electric and hydrogen cars will be that solution. So we're on the way. In a lot of cases, we're already on the way. It's, it, it, it's happening. Uh, the consciousness of people towards climate change is increasing rapidly. It turns out that we can even get Republicans and Democrats to agree that climate change is the biggest problem that we're facing right now. So, I mean, that's a, that's a new thing. So, and, and yet at the same time, I'm part of a few groups. Almost everybody says they're an impact company today. I mean, it's ridiculous. And if you ask the question of how are you measuring, solving challenge for impact, they're not, the individuals or organizations are not looking upstream they're only looking at a few variables downstream and they're not looking at sideways what impacts they've had to other uh, value chains at mm-hmm. the exact same time. And what if you did look at those, they're no longer doing actually impact. They could be harming something else in the process of doing impact like the Freon example that you just yeah. used. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I mean, at the end of the day, basically, there's somebody in the world who understands that problem, all of them. And how do we get those problems to be solved by people? How do we get people to take action? So this is the bottom-up approach. I'm, you know, I, ever since the, the Paris Agreement and the fact that the, the countries that signed on to the Paris Agreement are actually not on track to solving climate or staying within two degrees by a long shot. Correct. Um, so I, I don't have the highest hopes for the United Nations to be able to solve this problem because it's just not how the United Nations work or how countries work. You know, your problem that you mentioned earlier saying, you guys have had it so good all this time and now it's our turn to have it good. So wh- why are you taking our ability to have a, the good life by saying that we can't produce carbon dioxide or whatever it is, you know? I, I, I've got to tell you, living in Hong Kong was an ama- absolutely amazing place. It's changed a lot. But one of the things the first week I was there, or first month, don't remember the exact timing, was on the front page of the SCMP, South China Morning Post, there was a picture of the globe 
And it said, if the rest of the world lived utilizing the same resources that Hong Kong uses, we'd need 13 additional Earths <laughs> to be able to support it. Yeah. Well, you could say that about any city, I'm sure. No, well, no, well, I, I, the reason I, if you had been to Hong Kong, you would notice that there is a, the, every single building was so freezing that you would wear a jacket in the middle of the winter or summer because it was so cold. We actually had jackets for our meetings that yeah. we would put on in the middle of the summer. And every taxi cab, even during March, when it's not that cold, it could be you know 20 Celsius or 50, 60, they had the aircon on. Mm. So yeah, it's a, it's a lifestyle. And so yeah, let's get to, I believe the United Nations is not the solution. I don't believe governments yeah, so, are the solution. So, I believe that it's the, it's the world. My gamer background and my role-playing game back, background comes back to uh, solve this problem. Uh, I'm in the process of creating an app, and it's a Yelp for environmental action. So people, after I give a speech somewhere, they always ask me, well, so what can I do? And I said, well, I don't know what you can do. I know what I can do. I can get up here and, and try to convince a bunch of people in an audience to do something. But I don't know what your talent is. I don't know what your ability is. I don't know what your desire is. You have to find out what you want to do. But giving, get, you know, after giving that thought, I realized, you know, a lot of people, they might want to do something and they might be motivated. Hey, I'm really going to do something. But then they just don't get around to it. And they don't know where to start. And so this is where role playing comes in. So in a role playing game, you do small things and you gain points and you go up a level. Then you start doing bigger things and you gain points and you go up another level and then you do bigger things. You become stronger each time, you become smarter, you become faster. Yeah. And so this is what I wanna do with people. So the app is like, well, I've, I've, I've asked people to send me, I got, I got hundreds of things to do and I sorted them into categories and I found a way to, to sort them into just three categories plus other. And the three categories are energy, which is everything to do with climate change, fossil fuel, um, transportation, and waste, which is to do with the circular economy, plastic yeah. in the ocean, litter, all that. And then nature. And nature is basically um, active regeneration of nature, rebuilding the coral reefs, replanting the forest, uh, the mangroves, whatever it is, putting back, putting back what we've taken from nature. Those three categories. And so the way, the way the, the, the app would work is you would start, say, um, say it's energy. Well, the, the, the smallest thing you can do, and this a four-year-old can do it, just turn off a light <laughs> in a room where, where there's nobody. So, so, so can, I, can I add one while we're on the list? Sure. You okay. can add lots of them. Pick well, up this is one that you, this one will probably shock you. The guy who invented Siri... I've spoken to him. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. I apologize to him. Mm -hmm. He now handles, I think, Samsung's uh, innovation. He did the math of the cable's length and energy it takes to post one photograph on a Facebook or an Instagram or something. So it's millions of miles or, or kilometers of cable. It's server farms. It's information, not including storing it, to post one image on an app is the equivalent of three 20 watt light bulbs running for an hour. 
That's the energy to post one post on your Instagram account. So if you post 10 today, you could run three 20 watt light bulbs for 10 hours. That's um, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I, <laughs> that's I like a, that's like holy cow! <laughs> I'm the I'm the um, honorary consul to the kingdom of the kingdom of the Netherlands to Hawaii, Guam, and the Northern Marianas, and so I I keep in touch with what's going on in in the Netherlands, especially when it comes to things like renewable energy, and you know the 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 North Sea is being covered by offshore wind. And so all these fishing villages are no longer able to fish because they're now all their their fishing grounds are are, are wind farms. Well, yeah. so you know how much of an impact in Holland has have this wind farm made? And he said, you know what happened? Well, what happened is that because we had the wind farms, uh, the uh, the electricity became so cheap that companies started locating their server farms yeah. in the <laughs> Netherlands. And basically all of the energy that we produce on all of the offshore wind now goes to power server farms. And blockchain uh, utilization. Bitcoin. like Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin. That's the same. Bitcoin. Exactly. Oh my yeah. God. Mine yeah, it's, just, it's, running, it's running something. <laughs> It's insane. So, so how do you going to your app? You said turn off light. Mine was going to be don't make the post. Yeah. Okay. So, so it, I mean, like, so doing something which is negative mm-hmm. is generally not something which is how can I say sustainable. It's not. So that's why I'm. I, you said turn off light, and I'm. I said to myself, oh my god. I mean, I've no, got a four. But here's, I've, the, but here's the deal. So, so you start off by by picking up a piece of garbage, putting in a garbage can, yeah. and you go up a level. And now you're talking about recycling. I don't know bags of plastic bottles, and and you go to the next level. And now you're basically going upstream and and doing beach cleanups with like a hundred people. And you you go up again, and 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 now you're cleaning. I mean when you think about the things that, that need to be done that require larger numbers of people, those are all things that, that happen as you go up levels and you become, you know, you gain this status of being somebody who's actually fixing the environment. You're actually doing something about it. You're not just talking about it. And so the things get bigger. And by the way, it isn't just you doing something, but if you, uh, if your father just so happens to be working for a company that does blah, and you can convince your father to change his company's way. And that would be a, like a huge impact. Not only do you get points for what your father just did, but you can create your father's account and make him into a freaking hero. See, and I, so, the, the, the challenge that I have, and I'm not picking on your app because I actually have a gaming system that I think that we should talk about uh, that we're working on for Project Moon Hut. When I, today, if I measured the amount of food that I ate and the packaging that went with it, it is mind boggling. I mean, it's absolutely mind boggling how much extra material, printing, paper, plastic that goes into it. I don't know how easily I can offset that. Okay, but here, here let me give you an example. Um, there, there is a similar product. It was about garbage. 
and picking up garbage. There's a, an app that, that deals with that and you take pictures of the garbage as you pick it up. And it turns out that the number one litter item in the Netherlands is a candy wrapper. And so mm -hmm. a group of people went to the CEO of this company and said to him, do you realize that your plastic candy wrapper for, that, for, for your candy is the number one litter item on the streets of this country? Mm -hmm. And he, he never even imagined that. He never even thought about that. And so he pledged that he was going to make his candy wrappers biodegradable. And within a year, those candy wrappers became biodegradable. So what I'm saying is that people, once they, once they understand that there's an action that they can take, they can organize and take those actions and cause that kind of change. Well, what, you're, what you did though is to me a little bit different is you were able to do data analytics overlaying on top of human behavior, being able to analyze that and be able to come back with an, a, a, a conclusion that could be offered to the company. So you, there was a variety of things that went into it, but it's, ba it's basically, it's like a Waze technology for cars is now you know where all the potholes are. Now you know where all the challenges are, but it's a data game. Yes, and that data is being collected. As we go, you know, Pokemon Go showed us that, that humans can collect data. If you don't rely, rely on experts, see, that's why I say Yelp and not Michelin. Michelin, you, there's <laughs> okay. like a handful of people that go to a handful of restaurants and tell you that they're the most amazing restaurants in the world. Whereas Yelp, the way it works is everybody goes to a restaurant, they can say something on Yelp and give feedback to the next people that are making decisions about what restaurants they should go to. Yep. Now, we can do the same thing with companies. You can say, okay, uh, this product is eco-friendly or this product is not eco-friendly. Uh, I, I, I have a little system there. Instead of giving a product five stars, give it five planets if it's eco-friendly. And so the more planets a product has, and this is user-generated content, the more people buy that product. So I'm not going to stay in a hotel that is not eco-friendly. So better have five planets or I'm not staying in your hotel. And then it becomes a competition to see, see who can make the most eco-friendly hotel and all the products become nice and and you know there's a feedback loop from the people that are concerned about it to the companies that produce those products but let me finish about the sure. the app so the yeah. the app the way the app works is um we collect things to do from first of all from ngos that want things done like the sierra club asked me to write my congressperson to make them do something it's just not the kind of thing that i'm i'm going to do but there might be somebody else who's not a Sierra Club member who's just fine with writing those kinds of letters. The problem is Sierra Club can only talk to the people in their silo yeah. because they, they don't share information about, about their members with other NGOs, that kind of thing. So here it is. It's a outside of Sierra Club. If Sierra Club wants something done, they put it inside of the app and then somebody will pick it up and get points for doing that particular thing. So now they are reaching huge numbers of people. It can be used for, by students to, to uh, have Friday strikes. It can be used for you know, anything, anything that anybody needs to, be, needs to get done. Well, one source is of course the NGOs because they know what they're doing, but another source is just straight up crowdsource. And then in addition to the crowdsource, 
we connect things to do or we get celebrities to say, I want you to do this. And if a celebrity, I don't know, uh, Ronaldo says, we need, I, I want you to go and, and, and pick up candy wrappers. And then all of his fan fans pick up candy wrappers. They're all getting little points for candy wrappers. And Ronaldo's also collecting points for the same thing because he, he got them to do it. So, so what I'm saying here is that then it becomes, uh, you know, celebrities, sports figures, musicians, whatever, boys bands, they can get their fans to do things. And, and it, there's no longer a politics or why am I doing this? It's just, can you please do this for me? And if they do it, then they get points. So now you're now it's a competition between, I don't know, the top movie stars or the top musicians to see who can get the most points. Uh, so I, 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 I'd even imagine that you could have the fans of like the New York Yankees versus the Boston Red Sox, who can collect the most points before the next game. You know, that kind of thing. We can com compete city versus city or country versus country. I don't care as long as it's good stuff. We just have to vet to make sure that it's not like destructive stuff. Well, again, again, we go back to, we don't know what the challenge is, good versus bad because of like the free on example. So let me go back to the title because I think I shared with you one of the things that I focus on is the promise of the title. Thinking bigger and bigger and bigger. What made you decide that this was where or how you are going to put your stake in the ground. Yeah, it's because I, because I looked at what I was doing and I realized that it isn't going to solve the problem at the end of the day. And I need the problem to be solved at the end of the day. My mission is not to end the use of carbon-based fuel in Hawaii. My mission is to end the use of carbon-based fuel in the world. Why? And the... Why? why? Because yeah. that's, that, that is the job. Oh, why? That's what needs to be done. Well, why? I mean, why, why, why is it? Because, because otherwise we're, we're giving our, our children a crap future. So the reason you're doing it is for your children. I'm doing it for everybody's children. The, it's not my children. It's not. I, I understand. It, it, uh, if you heard our thing, our directive, it is to uh, to improve life on Earth for all species, and we have six mega challenges. So, I'm asking you, what made you decide that you were going to take on changing it for the rest of the world? Not like a bad thing. I'm asking you a no, positive. No, no, I understand. I understand. So, when I started in Hawaii. Um, uh, you know, I, I remember being on a panel and a, a panel of experts, and uh, this was at IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. I was on a panel about renewable energy, and and I said, I'm going to uh, have Hawaii become 100% renewable by 2045. And the guy next to me says, oh, I'm an expert in this area. There's no way you can do that. <laughs> and, and I said... I said, well, I'm not as smart as that guy, so I'm going to do it anyway. So you're not competitive as long as you win. You, you <laughs> well, are, that's the phrase. That's my, I've had it since I'm 12. You could borrow it. It is. The thing is, you know, like I, I didn't know how I was going to do it or that I could do it. And now we're on track. But so, you so did it. You got bigger because someone kicked you in the face, slapped you in the face. Someone said you can't, and you then turned around and said, I can. Your first reaction wasn't, 
I'm going to do this because my, my children, and that's why I'm going to make sure that I can prove this. The first thing was, wait, 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 wait. Don't ever say that to me again, because I'm going to do it. And this is a value to my children. Yeah. I mean, you, you can, you can, you, David, you can say that, but that's not how my mind works. Okay. I, that's why I'm asking. Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. My mind just works. Look, if I can do it in Hawaii, which I thought was impossible, why not do it for the rest of the world, which I think is impossible now, but when I'm done with it, <laughs> it's, it's going to be, you know, somebody's going to be sitting next to me. So, well, that's impossible. And I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I, I, I'm very and much I, like I, you. I'm not picking on you. I'm trying to figure out how you think. I, I think I showed you my book. It's, it's, it's massive. It's 297,000 words. It took 12 years to write. I mean, I'm, I'm driven like you are in different ways. And so I'm asking, what's the impetus for you? What's that push? What was that thing that made you say, I need to make sure this is done. And you're telling me well, you sat next to a guy on a panel no, and he basically, and that's not the reason that's just, a, that's just like a symptom or no, it was a know. cause. It was a connection. It helped you to say, let me look at it. it. Well, first of all, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm not very good at, at, at uh, having tell, telling me people, having people telling me what I can't do. Yeah. Let me decide what I can't do. You know, you can decide what you can't do. Maybe you can't do that, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's just the way I feel about it. I know that, that's great. And I, and I think that when we talk about bigger, bigger, and bigger, because we're talking about on Age of Infinite is, a, is achieving a 250 to $400 billion project. And we're telling individuals who are listening an offering or listening, you know, me too, is that there are possibilities. And the challenge is when someone hears an individual, and I'm not trying to talk to the audience, I'm talking to us, is someone hears what you and I say, they often will say to me, yeah, but you're you, you can do it. Oh, no, no, but, but David, you, you always take on big projects. No, no, but David, David, you don't understand. You know so many people. I landed in Hong Kong. I didn't know anybody. I landed in Hong Kong because my wife and I needed money because the world, the 2009-10, the crisis was happening. And I had to find a place to make money. So I landed in Hong Kong. I mean, it wasn't anything rocket science. It was like, I strategically, this is the one. I needed to make money in an opportunity and I flew all the way 25 hours, landed on a shore and built a business out of it through the Asia Pacific region. Yeah, so, so the bottom line is, what I wanna say is I, as a game designer turned publisher or you know, entrepreneur, if I can pivot and, and get Hawaii to end the use of carbon-based fuel, which I know nothing about, this guy knows everything and I know nothing and yet mm -hmm. I'm doing it. The answer is, is that if you want to do it, just do it. This is not, this is not like- you, some, you, you have children, right? Yeah. Okay, because I know congratulations for your, ba your grandchild. You can't just turn to your child and say, do it. It no, doesn't but, work. But no, but you can say that to yourself. Ah, okay. That's that you, the only person, the only person that you really 100% have control of is yourself. You are the one you have to change. You have to 
you have to oh, you have to be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah. I know. <laughs> you know? I, 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 I personally don't say those types of things to myself. I, for, for thinking bigger, what happens with me is there's a spark, there's a, something that's said, there's something that's seen. And I say, huh, let me, I'm going to solve that. I'm going to do that. But I don't say just do it. Somehow I click and it, I'm going to say more times than not, there's a challenge put in front of me where I, I'm frustrated with somebody, I'm frustrated with something, I see something and I say, this is moronic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're saying you get pissed off and you're going to do something about it. But you know, like what happens to the people who don't get pissed off? I know, that's, that's what I'm trying to find. Is there, maybe you so do something different. Say, what I'm trying to say is, is you know, when, when you play a role-playing game, what do you get out of it except that you have a good time while you're playing the game and you feel good about having a level 52 character? I mean, what, what do you actually get out of it? You don't get any money out of it. You've wasted a lot of time. It's caused probably a big problem with you and the people that live, live in the same household. I mean, what do you get out of it? You get out of it. You get what you get is you get like, yes, I did something, even though it's, it's fake. That's interesting because I just realized when you said that, I have never been a gamer. <laughs> you just don't realize it. That's no, all. I, I don't watch. I don't watch sports. I, it doesn't excite me. I want to play it. Yeah, ditto. So, so I am. I want to be on the field. I want to play, and yeah. I don't play video games. Never really have. I would. I'd sit around and watch some when they played the games in the university college, they would have a game in the hallway and everybody would play with the Did shooting of the sports? tanks. Excuse me? Did you play sports? Yeah, I was a competitive skier, tennis player, soccer, and I'm a black and belt a in Taekwondo. Hello, you're just doing something in the real world rather than a virtual world. There's no difference. Yeah, well, so- I think there's a difference. But I don't relate that to, and I don't, I'm trying to think, I don't believe I relate it in terms of the same scoring type. Like I don't try to treat for- That's because you don't play video games. People who play video games and, and snowboard get the same rush out of doing something amazing in the virtual world or in the real world. And what's the difference between sports and virtual sports? Sports was invented, they were invented by people a long time ago to make sure that we were physically fit for a lifetime of physical labor. That's what you're preparing for in the old days. And guess what? These are not the old days anymore. We are preparing ourselves, meaning young people are preparing themselves for a lifetime of mental labor in virtual worlds. And so it's the same thing. They're training for something that they're gonna do in the future. It's just not physical labor anymore. It was, were sports actually invented for keeping people in, in healthy condition? Really? I, I'm, I'm just asking a serious question. Well, I mean, why would you do it? I mean, that, yes, I, just, uh, I think so. I think, I think all those activities are useful. They, they keep you in, in condition. Well, you could say that sports you know, had to do more with keeping people physically fit so they could fight battles like the old Olympics, mm -hmm. you know, the or, wrestling and boxing and those kind of things. But I mean, but sports in general, I, I, I believe that sports in general are physical fitness things. When, 
you know, again, we in, in, in normal life today, there's not a whole lot of physical labor left for us to do. I, I, yeah, I know. I understand that today. I'm going back. I, I, I would probably say that part of it is uh, competition to win a mate, competition for community, competition for something inside. So yes, there's a gamification to that. And uh, yeah, I, you're, you're trying to find a difference. What, what I know, what I, I'm not trying to find a difference. The way when when I work, I always ask myself the question first: What do I do? Like what? How do I get excited? How do I think something through? And I'm not, I'm not the guy on the side of a, a football game or basketball. And I've been to them when I was in college. I, I was second row seats, but I was not the guy jumping and screaming on the side or yelling at the stands. That's not me, but I'm competitive with myself to an unbelievable degree. Yeah, it's a, but I mean, computer games are like that. You know, it, it, today you can... There are video channels where people watch people play computer games. Yeah, it's, I know that. I've seen these things where YouTube, they go and watch a replay. Like, it, looks, it looks ridiculous. But I mean, yeah. it's, it's about as ridiculous as watching someone do, you know, watching somebody play golf. Why don't you go out there and play golf yourself? Yeah, I agree. I mean, so we're off on a tangent. Well, that, that's okay, because I'm trying to get back to the bigger, bigger, and bigger. And yeah, so we, so we got through a new panel of experts, renewable energy, 2045. You were a little frustrated with the guy. And so I'll just to pick it up from there. Yeah, so the, so the, the bigger, bigger, bigger is, is basically I'm starting myself on those two areas, the top down, bottom up, and all that. And I'm working on climate change specifically. But then there are all the other people who are going to contribute things that they want done to the alliance. And those things need to get done too. So it's a mechanism for everything to get done, not specifically this thing or that thing. I'm not creating another silo, I'm leaving it open. This is like an Airbnb instead of a hotel. It's, it's where everybody can put whatever they want to get done into a database and other people can pick those things and do them and get credit for them. Hopefully, you know, the status will get you something. Like uh, if, you're, if you're applying to a university, your status in, in environmental status will have something to do with your placement. You know what I'm saying? There'll be real yeah, benefit. Or if a company's gonna hire you, you know, what level are you? And you know, are, do you actually give a shit? Have you actually done anything? And, and so these kind of things, I'm a I'm a a one K on United. So when they yeah. when we're getting on a plane, I get to get get on first. Whoop de yes. doo. Yes. Yeah, it's I know. Like yep. such BS because this I'm I'm a you know I'm in business class, so there's never a problem putting my roll away you know roll on you know into the into the bin up above. Yeah. And so what, what's the benefit? I get to be on the plane a little bit longer than everybody else. Is that a benefit? <laughs> So people, well, you, know, you also don't get, you get priority status. So you don't get bumped off a plane. There's yeah, about yeah, six yeah. other things that you get to go to lounge, which makes it easier. So yeah. there's a few other perks that go along yeah, with so it, but that's, need, that's the gamification. Yeah. We need society to have those kind of perks for people who, who actually working their asses off fixing this place. Yes, absolutely. And, and to that point, it's hard to believe that all these essential workers who we've called the central workers that we've needed when it came to shot distribution, 
why wasn't why weren't all these people at the very front? The people who made sure the food was there or in the grocery stores and everything else. So they were gamified, you're essential, you're important, but they weren't gamified, I don't believe, in all places as the yeah. priority people when it came to be given shots if they wanted one. Yeah, and it's because there's no central system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think that the alliance and getting everybody in the world to do something uh, to gain status and have everybody compete to see how much of the environment that they can actually fix, how many trees can they plant? You know, I think that is an interesting metric for people to talk about each other. You know, if you get a job, buy a product, whatever it is, it, you should have, that, that status should be worth something. And maybe we can even have those points be, be Bitcoin points that you collect in 20, your offspring collect in 2045 if we fix everything or when and, we fix everything. Uh, and and I, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it bigger in my head. So it might sound one way. Like, look, I, I think this is, I think if we do it right, we have, this is a way to fix the entire planet. The, that's why I do want to talk to you about the gamification of what we're talking about, because it integrates the sum of what you're doing on a scale in mirth within the moon earth ecosystem and how we can gamify mirth, which would then impact. And you said it earlier, you talked about how space is for the circular economy, the gig economy, the shared economy, the resource utilization. And so when you learn about our more in depth, you'll be able to see that there's a huge gamification component to it. Yep. By so, the way, go ahead. Why, why MERS and not MARS? It's um, because if you, that's a very good question. When you look at creating ecosystems or economic systems. We use, let's start with the economic system. You would, in the old days, years and years ago, someone would hop on a boat, let's call it the Nina, the Pitta, the Santa Maria, and it would go to another shore, would find a place, drop someone off and come back, leave some people there and say, we'll be back, maybe they won't. And when they got back, they would say, hey, hey, here's a, uh, there's some opportunity there. So more individuals would open up their wallets, be willing to make this route. And eventually you create an economic cycle, certain system that happens. When you think of the moon, the moon is only three days away in terms of travel. But if you think of Mars, Mars is an elliptical hitting where you can only reach it within a two uh right now within a period of about six to eight months. And then you're on a, a cycle where you're three years away to be able to get there and then come back. So if you were going to do a round trip, it's at least three years with today's technology, you can't make uh, Mars go faster. No, I understand. I understand. So if you, so ours is that with it, in the space industry, what I found, and again, I'm not a space person, is that people would say, Moon, Mars, Pluto, Jupe, we're going to go out, we're going to go to the galaxies. And I would say, wait, 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 let's slow down a little bit. We have an economic system or an e economy that can be created between the Moon and Earth within Mirth, and that we can trade and bring things back, whether it be platinum or microgravity work that could be creating new products or uh, low atmosphere conditions. And the Star Trek Enterprise will be built, if you were to think in that way, between the moon and earth within Mirth. So we can actually create this land environment, this space, 
And we can fill that with a full economic system. And in there, there's uh, space solar power. There is the ability to be able to expand where we live. And even more so, the moon is very much a part of the earth. We uh, are the, the fact that we rotate the speed that we do, the tidal waves, the, the, um, the tides are dependent on them, animals are dependent on them. So you, the next phase is this moon and earth ecosystem. David, you don't have to tell me this. I'm, this, is, this is the next part of my talk. Okay, well, I you asked me so so in no, I just, in I was saying you speak Mars and 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 Mars because because you know eventually um, Mars is probably more capable of 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 supporting a you know billion people compared to the Moon, basically where we have to do I don't know we there's there's no uh, no chance that we can turn uh, that we can terraform the Moon, but we can terraform the Mars, but that. And that's another day and time. So I ask this question of individuals and I asked it actually, the first time I ever asked it was at the Great Giant Leap. I said, when will we be on the moon? And at that event with all these individuals from Buzz Aldrin to you name it, guess when was the date that everybody gave? I don't you were. You were standing there, I remember. <laughs> it I was say it, I, the, say it, I say I say 2030. Okay. That is the date that everybody believes, and you're right. So if we're gonna be 2030, that's the date that almost everybody or beyond, they would go further, 2035, 2037. Yeah. If you look at timelines for the fact that on Earth today, today, the day this is being done, February 27th, 2011. There is not a human rated rocket on the planet that can get to the moon. It's not saying it won't happen in a month or two or three, but there's not one to get us to the moon. So if we use timeline thinking and we just measure out experience, uh, opportunities, shipping of uh, tons of materials that have to go, the moon is right around the corner for creating a new ecosystem. And that's where 2030, if you're saying we're going to terraform the moon or we're on Mars and we're going to have a million people on Mars, we're talking so far in the distance that the moon is right here to give us what we need for Earth. The moon is right here. You, no, look, look, let's 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 go step by step on mission number three. OK, I'm here. I'm here for you. <laughs> mission number three is to make a make a backup of life. OK, as far as we know. As far as we know, we have no evidence of life having existing or having existed anywhere else. I mean, this is what we're trying to figure out with, uh, uh, you know, on, on uh, Mars right now. Has there ever been life on Mars? Yeah. But as far as we know, there's no life anywhere else. And we have evidence that, that uh, things come from space and do major damage you know, like like the rock that killed the dinosaurs, which wasn't yeah. a very big rock. Came from space, hit this planet, and wiped out the dinosaurs. If yeah. that rock hit this planet today, we would be gone. Yep. I mean, all of our food sources would be destroyed, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. We would be gone. And so I can, I can foresee a 
uh, a major what whatever it's Some, called existential existential yeah so uh, you know event of biblical proportions where life gets snuffed out yeah if we have life living on another planet the odds of that happening goes down to zero we've already figured that out yeah. and so i coming from the computer game industry you know, like if, if my programmer came to me and said, you know, I've been working on this game for a year and now my, I fragged my hard disk and I, 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 I where's your backup? backup. <laughs> you are so fired. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 I, I might even turn to the CEO and said, are you serious? You didn't back up all these C, these other drives. So. Yeah. So, 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 and, and, and now we're basically, I, I kind of feel that this is, the reason we exist. Now, people ask me, why do I want to go to other planets? And, and I say, okay, this planet, look at life on this planet. It's a very thin skin around this entire planet. Let's give it a name, Mother Nature. I think what's going on right now is Mother Nature is pregnant and we are it. We are the way Mother Nature makes a backup, makes a child, makes another Mother Nature on another planet. We are the way. And yes, she's having morning sickness and she's getting a fever and she's going to make it really uncomfortable until we finally decide, yeah, we got to go. And when we go, then all the pressure. Uh, when we go, Mother goes. Nature's going to say, finally got rid of that coronavirus human. <laughs> I, think, I think that that when we go, because we can't survive without the rest of Mother Nature, uh, that we will bring life as we know with us. And then it gives it a start in another place. This is really the reason we exist. You so, should, so, there, there are a lot, bunch of podcasts where this thing goes without saying on the Age of Infinite. One of them, the, I just shared with you before we got on, Alex Leyendecker did a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal job in a category I was always interested in, which was since the space thing he is, he said that if we don't solve sexuality and reproduction, and we have not solved that, there's no way we can go to any planet and survive. And he goes over radiation, radiation challenges, the uh, challenges with where the sperm, if the egg will fertilize, uh, adhere to the wall, uh, the challenges with all of these things are so far from being solved, it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. And the other way of looking at it is there are people that are thinking about this right now. I mean, stem cells, mm -hmm. you know, cure for cancer. If we, if we can cure cancer, basically what we're doing is we're, we're taking cells that are, that are malfunctioning, which is radiation, radiated cells, yeah. And we're getting rid of them and, and replacing them with, with cells that are working. Well, all I'm saying is it's a great podcast to listen to for this one challenge because it was a question I had is how do we ensure that the human species, if it leaves, if it goes off planet, the interview answers. It's a four and a half hour interview. And he did a brilliant job of really explaining tech, uh, on the biology side and the cultural, sociological, scientific side. So just when, one you should listen When was to. this conference, The Great Giant Leap? Uh, 2015, I'm almost, well, I can actually look up, when did I meet you? 
I create, uh, no, I didn't create you at the time. It was, I think 2015 is when it was. I'm almost positive. 2015, okay. So uh, high seas actually predates that then. High seas, I have a, um, I, I got involved because I was involved in, in space exploration, moon, Mars, whatever. Um, there was a project that was coming together, uh, which was a cooperation by the University of Hawaii and NASA to test long-term missions on Mars. And high C stands for Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. And um, so the idea was just to um, sequester six people in a dome that was like a Mars habitat yep. and for long periods of time if they, uh, and, and see how they work, to, how, if they go crazy. So kind of thing. So uh, I got involved because uh, four months before the first crew showed up, NASA and the University of I figured out that neither of them could own a habitat. So the head researcher on bended knee came to my doorstep, can you please own a habitat? We will rent it from you. And I said, if I'm gonna own a habitat, it isn't going to be a piece of shit. And the reason, is because you know all of the other habitats in the world are these these low budget slapped together terrible condition like i don't understand if you're going to send somebody to mars they better have some seriously comfortable digs you know because i think that that the psychology of being cooped up with with five other people kind of requires you to think a little bit about creature comforts yeah and so we we basically trashed their throughout their design uh, we, we spent a month working on a new design. In three months, we had the thing built. The uh, paint was still drying when the first crew arrived. Now, we did five missions, four months, four months, eight months, 12 months, and eight months. During a mission, six people stay in the habitat. They go outside, they wear a spacesuit. If they communicate with the outside world, we delay that signal 20 minutes each way as if Mars is on the other side of the sun. Okay. Yep. Yes. Mars is from four minutes to 24 minutes. So it spends a lot of time out there in the 20, 24 minutes. And so we did that for five years. And uh, so we learned a lot. NASA learned a lot. Crew selection. Don't, don't get, you know, weed out this narcissistic people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually that's what, yeah, that's very important. Yes. That's very important. And so at the end of the five years, um, basically I took over and my theory is that we got to go to the moon first before we start thinking about going to Mars. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I mean, obvious. It's so like, I just, I just looked it up by the way, November 7th to 11th, 2014. 2014. Yeah. That's. You were yeah. so much younger then. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, so it was, it was then, and yes, I believe the Mars moon is the next step. It's not the, it doesn't have to be the end game. No, of course not. We can create no, an economic, course. we call it the Mirth ecosystem and the Mirth economic system. And that can be a full functioning ecosystem. No, absolutely. Well, and it can be, it can be, okay. So here's something about, uh, Earth-based colonies. No colony on Earth has ever survived that depended on resupply from the home country. Mm -hmm. And so when we build 
a moon base, if we're going to survive, if that colony is going to survive, it has to be able to survive on its own without resupply. And that's the objective. Okay. Okay. We have to grow our own food. We have to recycle all of our material. Anything new that we want, we have to be able to get it from, from the moon. We, we can't wait for resupply. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we're going to have to be able to make our own chips. Correct. For now. So uh, to figure this out, I, I did another great giant leap, another conference in Hawaii. It was the uh, International Moon Base Summit. And I, I brought luminaries from all over the world, including Buzz Aldrin, by the way, uh, to my, I had 75 people from all over. And we basically, I broke them up into little groups and, and had them, we figure out when, where, how, what, you know, about a moon base. And that's sort of the basis from which I'm, my plan internal, my, my mental plan comes from that gathering. And so we- And you didn't invite me, so I'm insulted six years later. I'm sorry, I didn't even know who you were. Well, I know, we, you were, you were well, standing we, next we, to me, you don't even remember me. We, we only invited smart people. Ah, uh, yes, of course, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I obviously didn't show myself the best side yeah, of me. Whatever, so so, I, so I, I do agree with all you're saying. The one thing that I would, I not, it's not a disagreement. It's that whether it's Mars or moon, but let's talk about the moon. One of the advantages of the ability of being on the moon is that we can create the, the be three days away. Someone gets sick. If you need to get something, we could send it based upon timing and, and capabilities of rockets. But the other part of this is that Today, all most expeditions are about science, research, exploration going on. Project Moon Hut, its focus is to create an Earth and space-based ecosystem. It is to drive that ability to sell, to create. So the first thing we have is a box with a roof and a door, a moon hut. And the second is an industrial park where products and services will start to be manufactured that could be used on the moon, and on earth. So we actually don't go to exploration as our, our science, as our secondary approach for being on the moon. It's the, the construct is all about how do we create an efficiency, not a completely self-sufficient, but an efficient ecosystem immediately. Yeah, I mean, you, you, can, you can try to get it right and they tried to get it right in, the, in Biosphere 2. Um, a good friend of mine, in fact, he's working, I'm the chairman of another organization called Pisces, the Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems. Yeah, um, I'm not writing that, by the way. <laughs> Rodrigo Romo, Pisces, yeah, Rodrigo Romo runs it, and he spent six months in, in Biosphere 2. And, um, you know, there was a lot of lessons learned. Uh, they tried to grow food in soil, and they tried to maintain all these ecosystems, and basically eight people spend all of their time growing food and they were always hungry. Yes. So, I mean, that's not a formula for success. If you're going to build a, a, you know, a moon base, you, you need to, you need to like spend, I don't know, 10% of your labor on, on growing things and the rest has got to be doing other things. Now, what are the other things? Yeah. We, we can try to guess what, what the other things are, 
Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, that building things and so on and so forth. That's manufacturing, which is very interesting. You know, sure, space, anything you want to man manu manufacture for space, for going anywhere, should be manufactured on the moon and then and sent and lifted mm -hmm. off the moon because it's much cheaper to lift stuff off the moon. Correct. Um, but here's what, here's the thing, you know, I'm, I'm uh, again, I used to be in the gem business. I think and I don't know this, of course, for a fact, but we've only only scratched the very surface of the moon. We haven't really found out what's inside the moon. No, we haven't. We actually, that's a question I asked a long time ago when it was Daniel Faber, who said to me, David, we've never dug on the moon. We, we, we've never dug on the moon. We don't even know if we can dig on these planets because first of all, with such low gravity, that if you pushed, you're going to be pushed backwards. So you'd have to create new technology for it. And there's a woman from Rebecca from a company by the name of Search Plus. She's an architect and, uh, and a material science or um, fabrics type person. And her name is Rebecca Pales Friedman. And she was the one who said, we might not be able to actually dig the way we anticipate on any planet outside without the type of gravity that we have here. So no, oh, we don't know. I, oh, no, no. I, I, that's nonsense. I mean, uh, well, I, the challenge, it was Daniel Faber. You, you probably know the name. He was the guy who said, David, we do, and Daniel Faber, is, I, he's very well known. He sat me down. He said, we don't know if we can dig on the moon. We've never done it. We don't know how. We've never done it. Okay, but I mean, that's just an engineering channel. Yeah, so. no, but he, that my point is the timeline. It's about timeline. Can we solve it? Yes, but we have never done it. So it's an assumption that we can do these things. That's all my point is. Not I, that we can't solve it. Saying, I know what you're saying, but I, I know people who are working on exactly that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I had a guy on the phone from Japan who's been working on this for about 10 years. And he was introduced to me as one of the foremost people in the industry. And I let him speak for probably an hour going over everything. And I said, okay, so when you break it, are you putting it into a crusher? And then do you break it down from a primary to secondary? And how do you do this? And how do you do this? And how do you do this? He said, what are you talking about? I said, I ran a rock quarry. Yeah, I did so, 22,000 tons of stone. You can't answer any question that I have. Okay, so Offworld is figuring this stuff out. Yeah, they're trying. Absolutely. Yeah, Offworld. They're already mining on Earth. Yes. Yes. So does that mean that they'll be the people to do it off Earth? That they'll be, but, but you know, they, them or they or someone like them will do this. What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say in general is, the first, the first wave of what we do on the moon is, is exploration and science. That's the first wave. The second wave is, is mining. We're going to find things on the moon that don't exist on Earth. Number one, there's nothing on Earth that was created in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. And we have a planet with a surface area the size of Africa that has that has that has everything that we have on earth but it was formed in a vacuum you can't tell me that the stuff is the same no it's actually not because we already know that it was an a, an asteroid that hit the earth at a very high speed velocity no, what i'm saying what i'm saying is like the lava flows that that all right you know the surface of the moon was liquid 
uh, rock at some point. Yeah. Now, when you get take liquid rock, rock and 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 crystallize it on Earth, you get something. When you crystallize it in a vacuum, you get something else. Yeah. Uh, yes. We we don't know what's completely there. We do know certain exactly. things are there. And not only that, but there was a period of time, three and a half billion years ago, when the Earth and Moon were bombarded by asteroids. That's what all those giant craters are, are yeah. all about. And the stuff that landed on Earth has been subducted and eroded. We can't find it anymore. But on the moon, it's still all there. Yeah. The, so the, anything that we would want to go to an asteroid for is on the moon already. Correct. So we can just drive to it. Yeah, so, I agree. So uh, we, we're in agreement. That the, no, moon, the, the moon gives us. Yeah, exactly. So, and then, and then the third one, of course, is, is, uh, is tourism. It's people wanting to have one-sixth, uh, people who can't walk anymore can walk again. Or people can have uh, one-sixth gravity sex. Or God knows what, what they're going to invent. We're going to invent, you know, flying. I mean, if you read the Heinlein stories, you, you can fly on the moon because your, your weight to whatever muscle ratio means that you can actually fly if you, if you give them artificial wings. So, I mean, there's a lot of things we could do on the moon that you just can't do on, on Earth. And your, your question about, um, you know, uh, having babies and all that, yeah. that's something else that's going to be solved because you'll be able to create using, you could build a city that's partially centrifuge. In other words, you can create a city that's 1G. It's, by, it's, by, it's not that, and I've asked, Lynn Harper was the first person I met at NASA Ames and she's oh, one of the people. Lynn Harper, yes. Yeah, she was one of the first people I met at Ames. Mm -hmm. And a good, someone who's done a podcast is Ryut Abramovich. But when I spoke with Lynn, uh, and she's also in, the, in this category, I spoke with Lynn and I asked this question the very, like the second day I was there. And she said, David, cells probably won't reproduce properly. They won't, they won't divide properly. And there were a series of, of activities that she went over. So it's not something that we're close at all. My point, we will solve it one day. But today in 2021, we are very far away from solving that dilemma, which was just what Alex Leyendecker went over. And we had, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sonia Schleppler, she went over and these categories. And then we had someone talk about, the name is escaping me at the moment, that in space, how we're dying, how rapidly we die. So we've had a few of these conversations and it's, it's just for me an eye opener because I had never thought about the challenges and how dire they are. So yes, we can solve them one day. And, and that's one reason we're doing chips in space so that we can solve the challenges on earth and microgravity. So let's hope. Yep. So um, my plan and I formed as a result of the, the moon base summit that I had the international moon base Alliance the main and international moon base Alliance is basically a bunch of people, uh, companies, whatever, that are going to bring build a moon base on the moon by 2030. Mm -hmm. Here's what's going on in the world. You've got all these billionaires building airplanes and no one's building airports. What is wrong with this picture? No, no airport, no airplane. Mm -hmm. And so if, you, if you're going to have a, a rocket that lands on the moon more than once, 
it's going to have to have a place to land. Otherwise, it's going to destroy everything around it when it lands. Yes. When, on, the, on the moon, when, when, you, when you land or take off, the, the dust and rocks under your rocket go ballistic and there's nothing to slow them down. It just keeps going until it hits something. So if you've got any kind of infrastructure anywhere near that rocket, it's going to be blasted out of existence. So, so basically, we need to build landing pads, first of all, and then we need to build facilities for people to stay and 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 work once. So, the Starship, uh, you know, I talked to SpaceX guys. They said they yep. can land me 150 tons on the moon by 2024. Give them an extra year, say it's only 100 tons. That is still a crap load of of payload. Yes. And so, what are we going to send up there? Is it going to be ISS style? you know, little capsules. And the answer is maybe in the beginning, that's what it'll be. But pretty soon we're going to have to be building larger, robotically building larger structures. And that's the part of the thing that I'm working on right now. Uh, the long-term goal is to use in-situ resources uh, um, to be able to create a kind of lunar concrete. Um, I think uh, if we don't find a... a, a clever way of, of blocking radiation, we're all going to be living underground. And so the, the mining uh, will not only produce mining materials, but it would also produce space for us to live underground. You know, if you go, I don't know, uh, I don't know, 10, 20 meters underground, you now no longer have a fluctuation in temperature problem. Yeah. Um, and you... And we're talking just so someone who's listening. They're called lava tubes. Is what? No, no, are. no, no, no. I, You're not talking a lava tube. I have lava tubes uh, near high seas. I've gone in through into lava tubes through uh, skylights. This is a hard thing to do. It is not easy to get in and out of a lava tube. So you're saying that we would dig 20 to 30 meters underground? I would, I would say that we'd be mining for something. This is how they mine for opals in, in Lightning Ridge and Andamooka in, in Australia. If you remember that scene where in, in Star Wars with a floating car, Luke Skywater floats up to the outside of this hole in the ground and the people are walking downstairs. Yeah. That hole in the ground is, and is, is in Australia. When they dig for the opal, the spaces that they dig, they live in those because it's mm -hmm. 140 degrees uh, on the surface. And by living down there in the places where they, then they're down to reasonable temperatures. So living underground is the way to go. I mean, we, we, we say, oh, people don't want to live underground and this and that and the other thing. But like, if you look at where people have actually lived on this planet, people live in, in, in ice huts, in snow huts, in, in the Arctic Circle, for Christ's sakes. They have babies in them. What what different? You know, you live underground. You go out when you're done, when you need to, when you stay inside when you're not. But it's not like you're going to go to the beach uh, on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I'm so the first thing that the that the Moon Base Alliance is doing is we're actually building a dome um, and an airlock, and it's the dome is sort of like what what we think is a building block for a moon base. Once you have a structure that you can build robotically and build a bunch of them and tie them together, now you have working spaces. And hopefully we'll get to the point where we can build larger ones where we can actually start growing food. Uh, but the food has to be managed robotically as well. We can't have people growing food. It has to be robots growing food.
we learned that in the Martian. <laughs> right? Didn't but we learn know, that in the Martian? We learned from a, a science fiction movie. You know, the, <laughs> the, the Martian, they're on their way back from Earth, back to Earth, and they change their mind and go back to Mars. Uh, that's not how it works. No, what I mean is they, the whole thing collapsed on them, and they, they didn't have robots taking care of their uh, plants. Didn't they? Did they? On the Martian? I don't remember. I don't think. I don't I, think they had plants. I didn't have, think they had robots yeah, taking care. Yeah. But science fiction is entertainment at the end of the day. It's also inspiration. So, um, so anyway, the, the bigger side of that, of, of the moon base uh, alliance is that we're actually gonna build a moon base on the moon uh, by the end of the decade. That's the idea. I think if I have a hundred tons going to the moon, I can build a, an amazing moon base. So what's, what's the cost of your moon base? It's okay. So, so what is the cost of, uh, I don't know, the World Trade Center? I mean, that you can figure out the cost. Yeah. I mean, so, so what's the cost? So have you done the math uh, feasibility I, study and said, I, okay, no, I estimate? No, no, no. It, it's the other way around. That's not how Elon is thinking either. If you ask NASA, they'll tell you, well, it costs us about $40 billion to build the ISS. So we're talking about probably $80 billion. Uh, fast forward in today's dollar, that's probably, I don't know, $200 billion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, sure. If you do it that way, if you get NASA to do it. I'm not saying NASA, you've got to be saying to yourself, we have to have rockets go up. There's going to be a cost to getting the rockets up. There's going to be some things you hadn't thought about. There's a cost structure to this. Of course there is, but you start with a vision and then you- I understand. We, we, well, I know the vision. I just heard it. So yeah. when you laid out your vision, is this a, a $350 million project? Is it a $500 million project? I, I, think, it's, I think it's probably a $100 billion project. Okay. I, I asked that only because I watched something recently and people are planning on doing, and I won't name it because people would know, they're planning on doing something very large in space. And when you do everything and you look at the bottom number, they're raising a million dollars. And there is no way with a yeah. million dollars that you're going to be able to do. Not. Of course not. But, but yeah, but, but that's, these are, there, there are people associated with this project who gave a number. And I would say, I just looked at it and I'm not a space person. I said, come on. So that's why I asked if the, what, what are you thinking? Yeah, but it depends on, 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 you know, where do you say you're done? You say uh, for a hundred billion dollars, we can probably build something that, that can hold, I don't know, a hundred people. Yeah. And then we have a moon base. I mean, we have a presence, a hundred billion dollars. If for example, the space force force gets involved, <laughs> they could pay for the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as, and, and if you look at, at, at the way it works in, in Hawaii, we have an international airport that shares runway with the uh, Hickam Air Force Base. Uh, so the Air Force, uh, they, they share fuel, they share infrastructure, the, the military guys have their, their own space, and then the civilian have their own space, and they live together, and it works just fine. If, the, if, that, if there is a need for military in space, that would be a way to use them. And, most colonies in the past, I want to say the military was involved on some level. In the, in the pre times, yes, absolutely. There was, well, there was some form of military or protection with them. 
Mm. So right? as far, I mean, yeah, we yeah. have this we have this discussion. I, I'm, I'm an open lunar, and we have this discussion about what are the rules for doing things on the moon. And I said, like, dudes, the, the the Chinese just poured a bunch of concrete on a rock in the ocean and say that's our land. Yeah. <laughs> and this is this is a well established uh, set of rules about what is a rock and what is an island, and whether you know whether there's territory involved or not. It it has to exist. Uh, um, when it's high tide, it has to still exist, or or it's not a it's not a thing. And so you can add concrete to a to a rock that 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 is submerged at, at high tide, and and so it's above high tide all the time. But they they break those rules, and who's you know try and stop me? And I think the same thing's going to happen on the moon. Are we going to fight a war on Earth because somebody broke some rule on the moon? I don't think so. I, I like the model of international airports. Uh, when you go to an international airport, no matter where you are in the world, once you're in the airport, you're sort of in international territory. Yeah. You know, you, you, everybody just looks at each other and they don't think about, oh, that's such and such a na nationality. Everybody uses the same toilets and uses the, eats in the same restaurants and buys the same uh, the luxury goods. Yeah, but so, that's only when, when they look at us. When they look at you, then, you know, they're kind of questioning. Who's they? And I'm, you. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I know you're trying to joke. You're, you're doing your best here. I, I get it. No, I, I, I agree with you. The international airports are, uh, in essence, it's a limbo. You are not in one country or another. That's the way it should be on the moon. That's exactly what a moon base should be like. That's a, that's exactly what the moon base. You should drop your nationality when you get to the moon. Why have a nationality? What do you need it for? It's surprising because when you, wherever you go, you bring your culture, your nationality, your, your, all of those things with you. You can't help it. So you bring your, you believe your non or religious beliefs, you bring your norms, you bring your sexuality, and those all come with you, have no you matter been, where you go. Have you ever been to Burning Man? I had not been to Burning Man. Okay, well, then you, then you don't know what you're talking about. You still bring who you are with you. Uh, you become somebody else. Okay, you, yes, you can. And that's what the hope is. That's one of the dreams oh, of many people in the space industry. That is, in fact, what happens. Everybody gets indoctrinated when you get to Burning Man. No garbage allowed. You, you have to uh, do gifting. There's no money exchange. You can't advertise anything. There's a whole bunch of rules. And they're just different from normal society. And people from all over the world get together in this place and lose your nationality. You just become creative, uh, whatever it is. So what I'm saying is it's possible to create a culture in another place and have everybody adopt that culture. Hawaii is like that, by the way. People come from all over the place. You know, I, I lived in Japan. My children uh, grew up in Japan. They're, all, they're culturally Japanese, but they're always going to be foreigners in Japan. Because, mm -hmm. they yes. because that's close Japan, yes. Okay, so. in Hawaii, there are no foreigners. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is. Everybody just assimilates and, and, and chills and becomes locals. You don't even have to speak the language and you still assimilate to the culture of Hawaii. Hawaii is a great place. Yes. And so I think Hawaii. That's where we met. 
Yeah, well, there you go. I'm just saying, I'm saying Hawaii is the culture that needs to be exported to the moon and exported to the rest of the world, if you ask me. So mission number four. Yes. Mission number four, find out how the universe ends and do something about it. So why the hell do I have this uh, mission? Uh, I asked myself this question a lot. <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. What the hell are you thinking? And, you know, um, I don't know where this mission comes from. Maybe some future space alien realized that the, that the inflection point for saving the universe is happening now and they need to communicate with somebody in the past and I'm, and they chose and me. You, and you're the one. Yes. <laughs> it's like, gee, thanks. You know, you're like Matthew McConaughey as a conduit <laughs> behind the walls. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I have had this conversation with like Buddhist reincarnations, you know, to see what, what, you know, how does the universe end? And they generally say it gets real hot. I think that there, that tradition is about, our solar system. If you think about, you know, what is the universe? Their definition of the universe could barely be the sun or or or, or Earth. Uh, so they didn't understand galaxies well, and all that. that that's interesting that you say real hot because what I have heard is the galaxy will eventually go dark and cold. No, of course. I'm, what I'm saying is that the Buddhists think that. Oh, okay. So, okay. Okay. So that so they're obviously. Their, their definition of the universe is different from ours. I, I crowdsourced this on Facebook, by the way. I said, anybody out there know anything about uh, the universe? You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how the universe ends here. And Facebook has all the answers. <laughs> of course. So I'm going to Yelp this, uh, this uh, conversation as, what, what should I give the Yelping for this when we go down this path? <laughs> anyway, anyway, so one of my Facebook friends raises his hand and says, yeah, I know something about this. Uh, do you remember who I am? I said, uh, and I said, yeah, you're the younger brother of my high school girlfriend. And well, she said, good on you for remembering who I am. She says, um, do you remember that little fortune teller lady that stayed at your house? And I go, yeah, she said I was, she saw me in Antarctica, which I thought was ridiculous. By the way, I've been to Antarctica with my entire family. So that actually came true. What she said about him was that he was gonna study abroad and become a great scientist. And we, you know, we laughed about both of those things. And he ended up uh, studying astrophysics at Oxford and now he's a tenured professor of cosmology at Columbia University. So he does know something about something. And he said, oh, by the way, we're coming to Hawaii next February. This is already many years ago. And they had a conference just like our conference where I met you this is a cosmologist conference. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, my dream come true. I said, okay, <laughs> on Monday, you're coming to my house. We're going we're gonna to have dinner and we're going to talk old times to get our personal shit out of the way. On Tuesday, you're bringing me 25 of the most interesting cosmologists uh, and their spouses, whatever. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to get them drunk and we're going to talk about the end of the universe, which is what we did. And so I've, I learned all about dark matter and dark energy and so on and so forth. So I actually have time. They said they, their biggest conclusion of that gathering was like, uh, you should call us back together in about a decade. And maybe wait, wait, we'll did you just say you have time? 
Yes. Okay. I just, I was going to hit the mic. Like, did, did I actually hear that he feels like he has time? Okay. So we do have, have time. time. In other words, the universe isn't ending next week. Because, okay. You know, originally, I was thinking if the universe ends next week, then why am I working on all these other missions? Right. We, we pack it up and uh, do something and else. Okay. Have fun. But, but actually, <laughs> actually, the, you know, what's going on in the universe compared to what's going on this tiny ass planet or even our planet and the moon and Mars is, I mean, the scale is so ridiculous that all these things that we're talking about that are hard things to do, like fixing this environment, uh, ending climate change, taking all the plastic out of the, all those things are just gonna be like small mentions in the history books in the future. Like the industrial revolution. And then we invented, uh, steam engine. Oh, and then yeah. we invented the cotton gin, and then we did this, and then we invented the container, so we no longer needed longshoremen. Then we had automatic driving cars. All these things just happened. They're like small things in history, but they were not small things at the time. They were huge things. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to say is that all the things that I'm doing, even though they sound like they're big or bigger or huge, whatever, they're still tiny compared to the scope of time and the scope of space and the sc scope of human imagination. So I'm not doing a big thing. I'm actually doing a tiny thing. It just may seem big to people who don't think that way. So, but I, I, I'm going to bring you back. You wrote, figure out how the universe ends and to do something about it. So did you figure out how the universe ends and you're doing a small thing but what are you doing about the universe ending? So, um, so first of all, it's um, your bullet point. <laughs> no, I know it's my bullet point and I, and I got to own it. And, you know, I myself, um, haven't figured it out. I, okay. you know, we, we, um, we have a possibility of figuring out what dark matter is in maybe the next decade or two. Uh, but nobody at my, in the group thought that we would ever figure out what dark energy is yeah but i mean these 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 are things that we now think we don't know anything about then there's a breakthrough absolutely and somebody discovers relativity or quantum theory or you know something like that which shakes everything else up you know we it, we could be wrong about our calculations we could we could find out that in fact we are that the universe's uh expansion is not accelerating or that there's matter being generated somewhere. Maybe dark matter is matter in a parallel universe that has gravity in ours, but not, not matter in our universe. And, and maybe, maybe we can get some matter from the other, who knows? I, I, I have the, we had on Howard Bloom, you might know the name, and he started his podcast from the beginning of time. And we went through all of this and it always, is a challenge, first of all, to go back billions and billions of years and then to go forward billions of years. So yeah, these are questions that we are not, we believe we're sure of, but we might find out in 10 years or 20 years that we were completely off. Yeah, so, so you know, the, one of the things that they, they said, the cosmologist said, if you asked us 30 years ago, we would have told you that we know something about something, but today we can, we can be very, uh, how can I say, sure that we know nothing about nothing. 
<laughs> you know, and it's yes. Uh, so to, to get to to do so, let's take this other half of it then, so that we have figured out that you um, we don't know how the universe ends, and I'm almost. Well, I can't say positive that I won't be around because we don't know what will happen to the transfer of cognition to neural nets and capability of keeping a human consciousness alive in yep. a, an alternative form. So we cannot say that. You, I, you're a little bit older than I am. Uh, so the timeline all comes down to how lucky we are to make it to that point where the health and technology merge to a place to keep someone alive longer. The second part, to do something about it. Is there something besides what you're doing that is related to the universe ending that you're doing? Um, no, I'm just in the research stage. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I haven't really gone far into that one, but I, it's a good ending. <laughs> So, so, to, so, just a brief story of of how the story of Black Onyx, okay, which is the, my first game. I there's actually a story that surrounds it. So, you um, uh, are a young man on a on a planet, an Earth-like planet, and uh, on this planet there is a tower that contains I don't know all these guardians, and inside the inside the tower is this object called the Black Onyx. What is the black onyx? And you, you, in your travels, you find an old blind man who turns out to be the last of the, like the Norse gods that they were supposed to be immortal, but they little by little got bored and killed themselves. And there's only one left. And he gave his, uh, he gave up his eyesight so he could see the future. And what the, what the onyx is, is, is um, a previous race of, super beings figured out that the universe was going to there's too much matter in the universe and it was going to collapse and so what they did is they they brought together a whole bunch of supermassive black holes and they created a shield around them neutralizing them now in neutralizing these of course if you if you were to like immediately take away uh, a third of the mass of, of the universe that probably causes a gravity wave of whatever biblical proportions. I would say even and, bigger than that because biblical uh, just means our planet. Yeah, there you go. Okay. <laughs> How do you know? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to take a guess that everything that's in the Bible is on planet Earth. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So, so basically, uh, what he, what he does, he, the, the black onyx is this thing that couldn't can that contains like a third of the mass of the universe. And there's all kinds of theories about what the black onyx is among the people. They think it's an object with magical powers or who knows. And so there's this, this whole competition, but who gets the black onyx? But he looks into the future and he, see, and he sees there is a future in which humans try to figure out what it is and they put it in something like the Hadron Super Collider, and they knock out one of the vertices of the onyx, and it collapses, and therefore it creates the end of the. It's Ragnarok. Ah, uh, yeah. That's that's what Ragnarok is. So your job as the young man is to take it to the other side of the planet, and there's a stargate on the other side of the planet, and you dial in a random number, 
and chuck it into the Stargate. And what happens is it gets sent into the Oort cloud and it takes humanity another, I don't know, X millennia to yeah. find it. When they finally find it, they're smart enough not to punch a hole in it. So they, they don't have five of these that they distribute around the world. It's one, uh, the universe, it's one. Yeah, it's, it's one. And, and <laughs> I'm just going to, what is it, the Avengers? Where yeah, the... but then the, my, my, my game, my story was blown up because the, the universe is expanding, not contracting yeah. anymore. Yeah. So it's like, damn, I have to make a new story. <laughs> oh, I, I, I don't uh, think in these ways. So it's always amazing when someone has the ability to be creative in this vein. And to take things in and these uh, in these directions. So yeah, it's uh, so we are going to uh, we're going to last for a few. We're not going to be blown out of the universe, hopefully, and we won't have the the massive biblical proportions happening. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, we're in a we're in a biblical proportion event right now, and we're the cause of it. So, but it's happening so slowly that we don't notice it by and large, but it's going to speed up and we're going to do something about it. That's why we're here. That so, is uh, I, this has been fun. <laughs> it definitely went in a different direction than I would have thought. And I, the, the guests don't know this. I don't say this that often. The people listening in don't know this. The guests do, uh, is that I don't know. I gave you, uh, we came up with a title mm. and you decide what this is about and you determine your own bullet points. You determine your own direction. So I, people are, are how does this work? I said, I don't know. I don't know what uh, Hank is going to talk about. And they're fun because they're engaging and you took us on a journey that I had not thought you would take us on. So th this is all great. Yes, and I enjoyed every minute of it. This is kind of, yeah, it's a conversation worth having. You know, everybody should have their uh, have a story, and uh, have a chance to tell their story. The, the challenge is that podcasts or interviews are often not uh, they're not conversations in the same vein. They're the guest come the host comes with their initiative, the guest comes with theirs, and you're there's a battle often. I'm not saying all of them, but there's a battle of the story and who's the lead. I, I come here to learn from you. I do challenge, but I come here to learn from you. And that's it. That's number one is I want to hear a different perspective. I want to be challenged, challenging my own thoughts. And you did that today. And, that, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you. So uh, a, for all of you who are listening in today, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen in. And I do hope that you learn something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Once again, the Project Moon Hut Foundation is where we're looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, uh, a moon hut. We, name came again from NASCA, NASA, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then to take those endeavors, the paradigm shift thinking, the innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Now, Hank, what's the single best way for people to connect with you? Oh, the single best way for people to connect with me? It's yeah. H-E-N-K at Tetris.com. Okay. Hank at Tetris.com.
Yeah. And I too would like to connect with anybody who's interested. Uh, you could reach me at david at projectmoonhut.org or david at moonhut.org. We're changing that because we've got both the URLs. There's, you can connect at Project Moon Hut. Uh, or at Goldsmith for me. There's LinkedIn and Facebook. We've got our Project Moon Hut on there. And we're in the next few weeks, we'll hopefully have a brand new website up. The team in Germany is doing an awesome job. So you'll be seeing that. So I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening. <laughs>